engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 200. Yes, 200. And today we've got a show that lives up to that big number as we've pulled together three of the very best DIY whitetail bow hunters I know for an in-depth panel discussion on what it takes to become a truly great deer hunter. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today is our 200th episode. Um, yeah, <laughs> we uh, I launched the Wired to Hunt podcast, I think it was in the spring of 2014. So we're approaching our fourth year and uh, doing one episode a week. And then during the season, doing two episodes a week, we've we've slowly made our way to 200. So uh, first and foremost, Dan, thank you for being with me for a lot of those. You've uh, this has been fun. Yeah, dude, I didn't realize what this was going to entail, and now that you say four years, it makes me look back and to uh, to the shed hunt that we had, right? Yeah, and yeah. you're like, dude, I'm gonna start a podcast. Do you want to be the co-host? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. And here we are today. A lot has changed, huh? That's right. A lot has changed. Yeah. And um, when we had our 100th episode, and this was a couple years ago, I guess, for that episode, we did a panel discussion with three different kind of big name deer hunters. So we had Lee Likoski from The Crush TV. We had uh, Dr. Grant Woods from Growing Deer TV. And we had Bill Winky from Midwest Whitetail. And my idea for that podcast, what we did was we had all three of them on, and then I asked them a handful of, of really, you know, sometimes often debated questions related to deer hunting, and then got the three of them to offer all of their own perspectives and debate a little bit on all those things. And that turned out to be a pretty cool one. So I thought now, fast forward another 100 episodes later, to do something similar. So today we're going to do another panel discussion, but instead of having a bunch of big-name deer hunters, 
I wanted to get together a collection of some of the very best deer hunters that fly under the radar. So today we've got three absolute killer DIY deer hunters that are going to answer some of the same questions that we asked the guys back in episode 100, but we're going to get a DIY perspective. And then I'm also going to ask, you know, we're going to get some different questions in there too that are relevant to the way these guys hunt. But all three of these guys hunt a lot of heavily pressured ground. They hunt public ground. Um, they hunt stuff they got permission on, small pieces, public pieces, and they do it the way that you know all the rest of us are trying to do it as well. So I think it's going to be very interesting, very relatable. And so who we've got in the show here, Dan, are two guys who've been on the podcast in the past and one new guest. So we have Andy May with us again, and uh, Andy joined us down in New Orleans for our live podcast at the Quality Deer Management Association convention this past summer. So Andy's back, and he's one of the very best hunters I know, definitely one of the very best hunters in Michigan I know of. Um, so he's back. And then we've got Joe Elsinger, who's out in your home state, uh, Dan, out in Iowa, he joined us last spring, I think, and that was a really, really great conversation, so I'm excited to pick his brain more. And then finally, we're also going to be joined by a guy by the name of Jesse Coots, and he comes from New York. So we've got guys from all across the country, and they've also all hunted in a lot of other states too. So they're going to bring a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different ideas, and uh, generally I'm just really stoked for this conversation. Um, but before we get those guys on... We have another exciting thing to talk about on episode 200, and it's kind of cool that this falls on the 200th episode because it's kind of a special episode for a lot of reasons. Um, Dan, I'm a dad. You're a dad, dude. <laughs> it happened. <laughs> this, I think I think the, the dynamic of this entire podcast is going to change now <laughs> yeah. because you'll, you know how, especially when it comes to, I think it's perfect, right? We have last on the hundredth episode, we had the big names on, right? And not a lot of people can relate to how those they hunt, but now we have these three guys on who are the DIY, you know, they're just like me and you, they have full-time jobs, right? They go out and they're on public ground or permission private and they go, you know, the, the grinders, right? And, and, and it's kind of relatable in a way because now you're going to slowly start relating to what I'm going through as a dad with a kid of your own. Yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff's coming full circle. Um, and for anyone who's followed this podcast since the beginning, I think it has been an interesting evolution to see you and me, um, you know, grow as deer hunters from 2014 till now, and then also right. now following us as we've each started our own families and how that's changing things. Um, we've got to document that a lot over the past few years with you. And now that begins with me. Um, mm -hmm. hopefully it's going to be a good thing. Potentially everyone's going to stop listening because they hate hearing us talk about kids. <laughs> <laughs> we had, we had someone slam the kid talk again on an iTunes review, so it's only going to get worse. But, um, right. but uh, all joking aside, it's, it's something that a lot of people go through, right? I mean, this is part of life for a lot of people and, uh, Absolutely. we're going to. We're going to live it and we're going to share it. And, uh, yeah, man, uh, two weeks early, my little guy I came know. two weeks early. His name is Everett Daniel Kenyon. And, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I know <laughs> as much as I love you, buddy, we didn't name him after you, but <laughs> right, right. 
but we'll let you believe that. <laughs> He's named after his uh, his grandpa. My wife's dad's name is Dan. Um, but yeah, man, from from here on out, you can you can treat him like he's named after you and spoil him and take him hunting on all your Iowa properties, please. Right, right. How pissed off would you be if I, like, when he starts getting old enough to hunt by himself, I give him an open invitation on the properties <laughs> that I hunt and not you? You bastard. <laughs> he starts laying down, like, 150s, you know, his first couple years of hunting, and you're like, hey, man, I'm here if you need me. <laughs> That's that's probably what's gonna happen, but I'd be I'd be happy for him. <laughs> right. right. Uh, so I got a, I got a couple questions for you. Yeah. I mean, you're living this you're living this dad life now, and we're kind of man only a month apart from my youngest, a couple months apart from my youngest to your. You know, I got a I got a four month old, and you have basically a newborn. Yep. And uh, so, what I want to know is. Was is having another human life in in your life that you're 100 percent responsible for like this? Was it as big of a shock as you thought it was going to be? Yeah, man. I mean, everyone tells you like your whole life changes and in a matter of seconds, you're going to everything else won't matter as much and all this stuff. You know, you've been telling me these things forever and everybody else has been telling me them. And I'm always like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but it is amazing as soon as he as soon as it all happened and he showed up um everything does change and it i mean my whole my whole world has changed i mean how i live my life already in the last 2 weeks has changed uh what i worry about has changed overnight um the things i'm excited about or looking forward to have changed uh so yeah no doubt about it stuff's different it's awesome um I still feel pretty confident that I'm going to be able to continue to enjoy all the same things we did in the past, um, but just in a different way, probably. Um, yeah. And I'm just so excited to share all those things with him now. Um, right. So I'm, I'm rediscovering sleep. For a while, I lost it, but we're figuring out a system, so I'm sleeping again. Um, I'm slowly starting to feel comfortable. For a long time, I was like in nonstop paranoia, like. Is he breathing? Is he okay? Is this okay? Is that okay? Um, so we're starting to figure that out a little bit. Um, he's super stinking cute. Uh, yeah. I, I always, you know, when you and me went on our elk hunting trip, I don't know, this was like two or three years ago now. Yeah. Like the first day or second day, you were already like talking about how much you missed your your daughter um, yep. and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, man, he's just been gone for two or three days. Like, man up, Dan. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I can already like see like I've already mentioned to Kyle like man I can already imagine like when I'm taking off on my trips how much I'm gonna miss him because already like I work in my office for like an hour or two and then I'm like I just gotta go out and see him for a little bit, um, yeah. so it's pretty it's pretty special I'm excited for a lot of cool stuff to come and uh, he's awesome he's just he's awesome he's my little buddy and uh, everything's different now absolutely I tell you what man there's gonna be a shift someday and I, I've I've I keep have to telling you know I I have to keep telling myself that as frustrating as kids are and as much as they piss you off and cock block you and uh, <laughs> like like all these things that you'll look back someday 
10, 15 years from now and wish that you still, you know, like you could go back and relive those days. And, um, I haven't necessarily hit, I don't think those days yet, just because my family is still in the growing stage. Well, hopefully we're done growing, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but, um, there's people, ways you know, to ensure that, you know, Dan, Oh, hey, do like, I got to get some of those nine finger chronicle checks in, coming in and <laughs> I can guarantee you that when they do, uh oh, it's snippy snip time snip, from snip. old Dan Johnson. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a good idea, man. Otherwise, I worry you're going to have like the Brady Bunch pretty soon. Uh, I wouldn't worry about it. Hey, like we, like me and Mark had this discussion before uh, we started recording about quote unquote getting action. Uh, him, <laughs> him post baby, and me with three kids. And like right now in my life, I don't have to worry about getting my wife pregnant again. <laughs> yeah, I guess new new phase in life. New phase That's in life. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, man. I I I've caught myself already like, you know, wishing, "Oh, I can't wait till he can walk around or I can't wait till I can take him hunting or I can't wait till he can hold his head up on his own." But then I also need to like remind myself, just enjoy the right now. You know, just enjoy this moment because right, everyone absolutely. everybody tells you it goes by so fast, you're going to blink and one day they're grown up and gone. So I'm going to try to do a good job of just soaking in right now, enjoying who he is right at this moment and all these little moments. And, uh, and that's pretty special on its own. So I got a lot to learn. Absolutely. That's for sure. Yeah, we all do. It's, it's a continue, continuous learning too. It never really stops. Yeah. And I will say one other thing. And, um, you know, we, we talk about this a lot and I think it just, I can already feel it mattering more now and that being, the responsibility we hold as hunters mm -hmm. in making sure that this way of life is still around, that there are still wildlife and wild places, public lands, healthy, you know, ecosystems, clean air, clean water, all that kind of stuff that we've talked about that matters so much. Well, now that there's a little guy here that I'm responsible for and that, you know, is going to be around here hopefully long after I'm gone, I, I'm just like thinking about that stuff even more. Like I need to make sure that that I leave a place that's better for him and not worse. Um, yeah. So I can that's see that is only going to grow in my, in my, in my mind, I guess, as the years progress. So, so if there's anything that people can expect to hear more of in the coming months and years, they're going to hear more kids stories. They're going to hear, <laughs> uh, they're going to hear more about how important it is to protect our way of life and our wildlife and our places. Um, and they're going to hear more about bad reviews on iTunes about our kid talks. So <laughs> there's all that to look forward to. <laughs> well, I tell you what, it's it's also a little bit about like a thought process change, right? When I, you know, back in the day, you know, I, I used to be all about big antlers, right? Oh, big antlers is is what matters. Well. I think we need to change that, and I know I've changed on it. I mean, I don't know what it we the the hunting industry, the hunters in this community needs to change and stop putting. I don't know. Maybe this is coming out of left field, but like we have to we have to change the way we think about how we look at success, and 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 I think that needs to be changed. Uh, first and foremost, before we try to do anything else, 
because it's going to be a tough battle when we're trying to get other people into hunting and all they see is giant bucks being killed. And they don't want to they don't want to go out and do it because just like the the youth today, unless it's easy, they don't want to do it. Yeah. Or on the other hand, if people just hear about all these deer hunters talk about is how they're trying to kill this 200 inch buck or 190 inch buck or trophy buck, trophy this, trophy that. I think that turns off a lot of people too because the the uh, the perception of what quote unquote trophy hunting is or means is uh, something that most non-hunters are pretty turned off by. So if we're trying to grow the hunting community, trophy hunting is definitely not a message that's going to resonate with them. Um, right. Now, how people define trophy hunting, of course, is very different. Um, but I think your point is well heard. Uh, for me, it's always been, and this could be like a half-hour discussion, so I'm going to try not to get too far into this, but it, for me as a deer hunter, it's always been, I'm very goal-oriented, um, so I always like to push myself to achieve something or to strive for something different. So, you know, sometimes that's been like an antler score. Sometimes that's been an age. Sometimes yep. that's been just an experience. Um, but I think having goals, that's not a bad thing. Um, but I think, you know, pinning everything just on an arbitrary inch amount or something like right. that and determining the worth of a hunt or the worth of a deer or something like that just by, a score that does seem to really take a lot out of it. Um, so, you know, I'm never going to hate on someone who pays attention to that stuff. Cause I do pay attention oh, no. to it, but there's no. a lot, there's so, so much more to it. And we need to, at least I personally feel like it's important for myself to, to celebrate all the aspects of it. Um, because you're absolutely right. I think that too much of an obsession with that, which there certainly is, is not a good thing for the future of deer hunting. And, and I think even for just right for enjoyment of it, I think, Right. It can be pretty negative too. So it's it's finding that balance, right? And um enjoying all aspects of hunting, respecting and respecting all aspects of the hunt. And um, you know, the the quote unquote big deer, that'll come if you uh if you focus on all these other details and try to do things the right way, you'll have that kind of success if that's what you're looking for. Absolutely, man. Let's see here. I got a question for you, right? I mean, how much time do we have left before we got to cut it? Oh, cut I don't know. Here. I mean, people people listening might be saying no, none, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you got to ask me now? We'll see how far we can go. 200, right? That's a big number, okay? Yeah. yeah. We, that's a lot of podcasts. Do you have any that stick out in your mind that are just like, Oh man, I, th this is one of my favorite ones, and I could I could go back and listen to it hmm. over and over. Um, well, you know, I think the Shane Mahoney episode will always be one of my favorites because he's just a legend, um, a guy I could listen to talk for hours, and and that conversation was just a, a topic that I'm always fascinated by. You know, we talked about um, the history of hunting in North America and kind of our ancestors and then the history of like conservation and hunters and public lands and, and all of that, um, you know, in the 1900s, that was fascinating. And then he also talked about the future of hunting and what we need to be thinking about as far as how we represent ourselves, um, how we communicate about hunting. And those are all things that are kind of near and dear to my heart. And Shane just does such a great job of, um, uh, of verbalizing all that. So, so that's definitely a favorite. Um, you know, the Mark Drury episode, episode number 63, that still stands out as just like, I don't know, he so succinctly spoke to so many different little topics related to deer hunting and the details of, 
you know, the things he's seen that drive deer activity and different stuff that I just geek out about. So many people have loved that one too. That's still a, a personal favorite of mine. And, and Mark is just a wealth of information. I always enjoy hearing from him. He's got a great name too. Um, ah, what else? What else? What else? Um, I don't know. Those two stand out. You know, the one we had our, well, I had my wife and then my buddy Corey's wife on. That was a funny one way back in the first year. Um, right, right. I don't know. These are the ones that are popping up in my mind. Anything for you that stands out? So I was, I was scrolling through uh, the episodes today and I'm going to go all the way back to episode number 12. Okay. And that's the life of a whitetail bum. Oh yeah. And <laughs> It's basically just a topic about, you know, how guys like us are just in it 365 days a year, right? I mean, that's all we think about. That's all we care about. And um, I, I I think everybody should go back to that episode and, and check that out. It's only like 28 minutes. Yep, that was a short one, but it was kind of a yeah. neat neat little uh, look at the life of a crazy people like you and me um that's and our right. listeners that's a that's a good one from way back way that's, back that's a way back episode you know i think there if you haven't went back and listened to some of the old episodes there really is some some good stuff now you and me we probably sound like bumbling idiots but i think we had some quality oh, yeah. content from guests i mean we had a great episode from jeff sturgis on food plots um the original Dan Infault interview, episode number three, that was packed with good stuff. Um, we had oh, good Jeff Danker episode. There was uh, Craig Doherty. We had a good episode with him talking about both habitat management and hunting. Um, yeah, you know, we've just been fortunate to be able to talk to a lot of interesting people. And it's been cool to, to be able to have all these conversations and also you and me get to benefit from it. You know, I think we've both grown as deer hunters, become hopefully, you know, a lot better. It hasn't always translated into more field tags, but I definitely feel like yeah. a more accomplished, uh, a, a more well-rounded hunter. Um, and I know that, that, you know, not every year, but most years translates to uh, actual meat in the freezer. So right. it's just exciting to see where things are going to go. Exciting stuff and to I come tell you, And I tell you what, as much as I love having the guests – on this on this podcast you know the listener gets a lot of great content out of that but from a selfish standpoint i gotta love just the bullshit sessions that we do it's just me and you yeah because i don't know i just i love to talk about deer uh and i don't know man it's uh that on top of i'll tell you what and i I owe you a big thank you for number one, you know, back at that shed hunt asking me to be a part of this. Uh, I, I love, and I know I don't get to hop on absolutely every episode just because of scheduling conflicts with, you know, three kids and work and whatnot. But I, I, I love talking about deer and I just, I don't know. I, I'm thankful that uh, I get to be a part of this and it's, it's helped me with, uh, you know, the nine fingers and all nine finger chronicles and all that stuff. So, uh, I owe you a big thank you. Well, hey man, you are very welcome. And I appreciate you being a part of this too. And you've brought a really, you brought a one of a kind thing to the show that nobody else could. <laughs> <laughs> and for that, didn't I, didn't I see a, uh, didn't I see like an application out there for uh, you know co-host wanted co-host. wired to hunt? <laughs> no, 
Nope, that is a, a, a job opening that we will not be uh, filling, hopefully. i got to be tenured by now. Yeah, I think you're locked in. As long as your heart's still ticking and you're willing to do it, I think you're stuck um, BSing <laughs> with me every week for the rest of our lives, Dan. So <laughs> There we go. So there you go. And we probably should wrap this up because I think our conversation with our guests is going to be a long one. So I suppose, though, for our 200th 200th episode it should be expected that it'll be a long one but we'll be five of us on this so it's going to be a lot of voices a lot of ideas a lot of different perspectives and uh, i think that is probably fitting uh for the wired hunt podcast here 200 episodes in so uh dan let's take a quick break for our sitka gear story of the day and then we will get joe andy and jesse on the line for this week's sitka story we're joined by Sitka Ambassador Kyle Hansen, who tells us about getting his first turkey with a bow. All right, spring of 2017, I decided that I wanted to try and get my first ever spring turkey with a bow. Having just picked up the bow a couple months prior, I decided that it was going to be bow or bust. I figured I was going to have to hunt from start to finish of the season and most likely go home empty-handed as I'd done before with a shotgun. On day two in the field, I ended up arrowing my first Tom ever. He came into the field at about 7 a.m. with some hens and started his way over to me. When he reached 30 yards, my maximum effective range on that day, <laughs> I let one fly, hitting him square and finishing with one lethal shot. And just like that, my spring turkey season was a wrap. On Kyle's hunt, he was wearing Sika's fanatic hoodie. If you'd like to create a Sika story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, and, and real quick here before we get to this interview, I, I just have to say that pulling off a five-person conference call podcast interview over the internet, uh, it's uh, it's a little tricky. And I unfortunately, I'm telling you this because we had some technical difficulties with this one. And someday if the stars align and I make it big and I all of a sudden have uh, the funds to to fly everybody in here in person to do these interviews here, that'll make things a lot easier. That'd be really nice. But until then, I'm going to have to keep hillbilly rigging it like I am right now and, and do this across phone lines and the internet. And so what happens here um, unfortunately, is that Dan got dropped off the line mysteriously. So, so Dan's gone. And then we also have some weird little audio issues, some weird noises occasionally, some weird clicks and pops. Um, it's a little, it might be just a touch distracting at times, but it won't be so bad that you can't take in all of the information and good stuff that these guys have to offer. And, and man, the perspectives that these three hunters share I enjoyed so much. I really do think everyone can learn something from these guys in this conversation. So I'm really excited for you to enjoy it. So apologies again for a little bit of these audio issues. Thanks for your patience and enough of me. Let's get right to it. All right. With us now on the line is all sorts of people. <laughs> we, we have got Joe Elsinger, Andy May, and Jesse Coots, and... I'm not going to ask them each to introduce themselves. I'm actually going to try to throw things around here a little bit. Since we're doing this panel discussion, and since this all kind of started from an idea that my buddy Andy had, I want Andy to kick us off here because, Mr. May, you had this idea of putting together these DIY deer hunter profiles, 
and you went out and found these different guys that are just tremendous deer hunters from across the country that do it the hard way. And you went out and you interviewed them and you put together these great blog posts for us. And so that's kind of why we're here now today, because all three of you guys on the line now have been a part of that profile series. And Andy, since you found a lot of these guys or knew a lot of these guys, I was hoping you could just introduce us briefly uh, to who else we have on the line here, to Joe and Jesse. So can you give us a quick cliff notes on who Joe is and then who Jesse is? Yeah. Oh, man. These two guys, I'll tell you. Joe Elsinger, um, <laughs> he uh, frequents a, a forum uh, called The Hunting Beast that I also get on once in a while. And I think everybody knows, you know, The Hunting Beast is, it, well, it's known for being uh, a group of hardcore hunters, mostly DIY-type hunters, uh, lots of public land, lots of high-pressured private land, um, you know, just the, the hardcore guys that just live and breathe this stuff. And um, Joe is, uh, I mean, he's a standout over there, um, just his experience and his knowledge of whitetails. Um, and just how far he takes his, his scouting and his preparation. Um, I mean, it's, it's unmatched. It, it actually blows my mind. And, and I, I put in a lot of time, um, and you know, Joe just, he, he doesn't leave anything to chance, you know, I mean, he, he makes his own success and it, it just kind of blows my mind every year how successful he is. I mean, two, three, you know, sometimes four bucks a year, um, you know, doing it the hard way and just a guy I really look up to. Um, he's inspiring. Um, and you know, switching over to Jesse, I, same thing. I met Jesse through another forum many years ago and, uh, I messaged him because he had a four buck season. And I remember a comment that he wrote and it said, you know, he was able to kill his last four target bucks on the first day of the season or something along those lines. I was like, man, I got to, I got to pick this guy's brain. So I messaged him and, uh, we kind of hit it off and we've been buddies ever since. Um, and Jesse is one of those guys that, I mean, he's as hardcore as they come. He does. It doesn't matter if it's whitetail, um, elk, uh, mule deer. I mean, if he goes somewhere, uh, there's, an animal is going to die. <laughs> it's going to be a good one. And he's just, I mean, one of the most efficient killers, if not the most efficient killer that I know. I mean, he's, he's like me. He's got a uh, kid, um, doesn't get a ton of time out in the woods, but he gets it done every single year on multiple animals and, uh, with very little time spent in the woods. So uh, now that Andy has fluffed you guys up really nicely, um, Joe, <laughs> I'm, Joe, do you want to uh, give your perspective on Andy since you had uh, done his intro for the DIY Deer Hunter profile on the website? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. Um, first of all, he's making me blush a little bit. That, that's not very nice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, Andy and I have known each other kind of, you know, through the Hunting Beast Forum, and, and we've uh, gotten to know each other a little bit outside of that um, lately. And he, I've, I've watched him for years, and, and he's one of those guys that he makes it look easy, and everybody knows it's not easy. Um, but, and he would 
freely admit it's not easy for him to do it, but uh, he finds success um, so quickly that it almost seems like, wow, you know, like he's not even trying. But behind the scenes, there's no one really more hardcore than Andy. Um, he, he lives, breathes, hunting, particularly deer hunting, um, 365 days a year. So, and that's what it takes to get done. He's always thinking for thinking about an angle, thinking about a buck, thinking about a way to, to you know, to, to get in and get the job done. So, and that, that starts the day after he killed a buck the last season, I think. So, um, it's pretty impressive. Um, and I'm, I have to say I'm pretty, pretty honored to be considered a guest with these two guys. Cause, uh, I mean, I'm just an Iowa farm kid, so I freely admit that um, I live in a target-rich environment. You know, I take pride in being a detailed <laughs> hunter, but I live in a target-rich environment compared to out east or in Michigan. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say, that's for sure. Yeah, and if you feel humbled to be in this company, imagine me. Uh, who hasn't done anything compared to you guys. And, and Dan was so intimidated by the three of you that he just dropped off the call. So <laughs> so, so the way it's well, going to work. Well, now he can crack redheaded jokes the whole time. Exactly. He can't defend himself. <laughs> and, and what I want to do from here then is kind of approach this like a panel discussion. So I'm going to ask a question, and then I'm going to point it to one of you and get your thoughts, and we'll just go down the line. And you guys can give your own perspectives, or you can you know, disagree with what the other people said or add on whatever you want. And we'll kind of try to move through a bunch of questions, relatively rapid-fire style, to cover as many different topics as we can. Um, but if there's something where you guys you know, really vehemently want to argue something out, feel free to do that. Um, but these are some questions that I think will be particularly relevant to you guys and how you hunt. And then there's also some questions here that I asked back on our 100th episode when we did our last panel discussion. And our last panel discussion was with Bill Winky, Dr. Grant Woods, and Lee Likoski. So those three guys answered some of these questions, and they duked it out between themselves. And now I want to ask some of the same questions to you guys and have you duke it out. And then it'll be kind of interesting to see how your three perspectives compare to their three perspectives, kind of the our big-name TV folks under-the-radar DIY deer hunter folks, and uh, I think it's an interesting comparison. So that's kind of what we're going to do. And the first question, though, uh, I want to say we're going to send to Jesse, and it's this, Jesse. I want to know, for you, what's more important? Is it scouting or the actual hunts? Give me an answer and why. Sounds good, Mark, and I'll just touch base on what Joe said. Uh, I'm honored to be a part of these uh this panel. So thanks for having me, man. Of course. Um, uh, that's, that's kind of a no brainer. I think any serious guy, um, is going to, is going to go ahead. I would think and say scouting is the name of the game. It's kind of like, uh, you know, training as a wrestler. If, if you skip your whole training season and go right to your first match, you're going to get pummeled. If you train all preseason and go into your first match, you're, you're, you're going to walk through it. And, uh, bow hunting is no different you've um you got to take your scouting serious not just riding around on a four-wheeler but, but really using your head and, and uh and scouting and i think every state has a different scouting technique so you, know, you got to take that type of thing into account but yeah scouting is the name of the game in, in my book i i scout probably 80 percent of the time and hunt 20 percent of the time okay joe what would you add 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, I put it this way. Scouting season is 365 days a year. In season, out of season, mm-hmm. you can scout. Um, other than, right. you, know, in, you know, some some public areas don't let you on other than certain times. You still cyber scout. You can think about stuff. You can look at old patterns of old trail camp photos. That's all scouting in my book. Um you know, hunting season, yeah, it might be a couple months long, but still, scouting season's a lot longer. And uh, you really have to enjoy scouting, I guess, to, to enjoy the success of kind of the DIY style. Um, I think that's really important. It, you know, everybody that I talk to that is fairly successful doing it themselves, they love to scout. Like, scouting is just as fun, if not more fun than the actual hunt um and that helps you get out there you know week after week uh, so that's what i think all right and andy how would you how would you uh approach this this question yeah i mean i, I hate to sound repetitive but i mean it's absolutely scouting i mean that's that's your preparation you know that's how you figure out uh, you know, what deer are there, what deer you're going to go after. Um, you know, you're trying to, uh, you know, find out tendencies that, you know, maybe individual deer have and and plan for a kill. I mean, I, I'd rather, I'd rather, um, be able to scout 50 days and hunt 10 days, uh, rather than be able to hunt every day of the season. I mean, I'm going to be more successful with those 50 days of scouting. In fact, like, I remember, uh, gosh, I think it was that a few years ago, Jesse, I think he killed like three or four bucks, the big mature bucks, like big, you know, Pope and Young plus type deer on nine sits, you know. And then <laughs> a couple years ago, I I killed six Pope and Young bucks on 19 sits. And, you know, we, we both have, you know, and, and, and uh, Joe, too, you know, you, you, got, you got families with kids. I mean, we don't want to be gone the whole hunting season. I mean, that's it's selfish, um, you know, for us to kind of, you know, <laughs> chase our dreams, per se. Uh, so, you know, we, we spread it out over the year and we prepare, um, you know, just through scouting. And it, it is. It's a year-round deal. There's something you can do every month of the year that's going to help you in the fall. Yeah. And I got to admit. To add to that, if I may. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say to, to add to that, the scouting is so much easier. When you're going hunting, you, you have to be out early. You have to get in ahead of time. You've, you've got to be sneaky. When you're scouting, you are, at least for me, um, I can jog out to a couple different places, glass in the last half hour light, and see everything I need to see. I can be up way before I have to go to work um, and do all my glassing and then still be to work. And, and only glass for a half an hour. You can do that every day. Um, so it's not a huge investment um, of time. So, you know, and, and that's how you can do it in different states, too. You, if you get it figured out, even if you can only go scout a state for three or four days, um, it's those crucial first half hour, last half hour. You can, all your reconnaissance, it's not a big investment of time. Yeah. It's a great yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, the flexibility that is key with, you know, I got two little kids too. So, um, you know, and family obligations, they take precedence over hunting. I'm extraordinarily, you know, I'm very passionate about hunting, but, um, 
being able to get out, you know, oh, I got two hours. Okay, I want to hit, you know, that public area that I've been meaning to scout, you know, um, or you block out, like I like to hunt up in kind of northern Wisconsin too, block out one three-day weekend, that's what I get in the spring for scouting up there, boots on the ground. Everything else has to be remote, you know, but uh, it's flexible. I pick the weekend, you know. Yeah. And and I gotta admit, I I kind of knew that you guys were gonna give me this answer. So I'm, I've been leading you, <laughs> and and given that's the case, what I'm what I'm most interested in because I knew that you guys are so obsessive with scouting, and because I kind of am guessing that's what really sets you guys apart. Um, what I'm really interested in is the detail, how you actually scout. I think when most people think scouting, they think. Oh, you know, a guy walks through the woods a couple times, sees some rubs, sees some scrapes, sets a stand there or something. That's kind of like your generic entry entry level scouting session. Um, Andy, can you start us out by describing in detail how to scout like an expert, like how to do that next level scouting? What is the scouting that you do that is making you so disproportionately successful compared to the guy that just goes out and, and looks at some rubs and scrapes a couple times. Oh man. Um, it's kind of hard to narrow that down to, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a short time frame. You could write a book on it, but, um, like Joe said, it's, it's a year round thing. So, um, you know, right after the season starts, I'm sorry, right after the season ends is a great time to, to start, you know, January for Michigan. Um, you know, I'll get right out there when there's still snow, the season just ended and I'll, I'll walk all my hunting areas. You know, I'm looking for winter bend, winter bedding, um, you know, travel routes, like to food sources, you know, kind of monitoring what, what the crop rotations were, um, trying to find bucks that survive that, you know, I might be able to chase next year and zone in on, um, and all that to relate, you know, to future late season hunting. Um, you know, that's, for me, that's a really important time frame because I don't, I don't want to be a, a rut guy, you know, and I don't want to be just an early season guy. I want to be able to be effective all year round. So, I mean, you can't beat right when the season's done, you know, you get that, that most recent information, most guys kind of hang it up for a while, but you got to get right back out there and you can get some information. So, you know, when the snow melts for me, um, I get right out there. Um, you know, I'm looking for, that's when all the sign is like still really visible. You know, it's before green up every trail, every skate scrape, every rub, um, you know, the, the beds are, are very visible. You know, that's when I'm looking for like individual buck beds. I'm looking for doe bedding, um, you know, intersecting trails, scrapes, rub concentrations, all that stuff. And I'm just trying to, um, you know, put all the puzzle pieces together for like more, uh, effective rut sits, you know, in for the next fall. And I try to find a lot of them so that, you know, I can fill up a whole, you know, if I get, you know, 10 sits during the rut or, you know, six sits, I want, I want high, high percentage spots. So, you know, I'm looking for the best of the best type spot within the spot. Um, you know, those really good spots where you have a lot of things going on that are in your favor. Um, you know, and then I go, you know, like kind of in May and June, um, you know, I, I tone it back. It's a lot of family time. I start really hammering my archery at that time, um, getting dialed in. Um, and then, you know, once, you know, kind of summer comes, 
August, September, that's when I'm, I'm trying to find those, you know, trying to find those early season patterns, a buck to go after early in the season. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm running some trail cameras. I'm doing a lot of glassing, um, checking fields for, you know, large tracks, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I, what I mentioned before was, you know, uh, I think Joe has a similar strategy, but I try to find, you know, five or six bucks in Michigan to go after because, you know, I'm going to screw up for sure. I'm going to make some mistakes on a few of them. And, you know, you get, you get the competition on these areas I hunt are so high, it's inevitable that other hunters are going to push deer out. So I usually, if I can find, you know, five or six bucks to, to go after, um, you know, then I can usually uh, uh, typically find success. So on that question, Andy, um, you mentioned that mm-hmm. you typically have five or six different bucks you try to find in a given year. And this this kind of goes to something I've thought a lot about. A lot of the best guys that I know, that guys that don't own their own land, the guys that are finding spots either by permission or in public, a lot of the people I talk to do like what you do. They have a bunch of different places to hunt. So how many different mm-hmm. properties are you working through to try to find these five or six bucks, you know, here in Michigan? I mean, do you have do you have five properties? Do you have 15 properties that you have permission on or public spots? How many different spots do you go into a year usually that you can say, okay, these are my options? Well, I'm always, I'm always adding, uh, you know, spots. Um, you know, there's some uh, – <laughs> A lot of people know kind of where I hunt. I don't want to give it away too much, but, um, you know, there, there's definitely some spots I have, <laughs> I have permission on. Um, and it's, it's spots that are shared with other hunters and you know, guys I don't know. It's kind of one of those things where the, you know, the landowners let people hunt. I got some spots like that. Um, you know, there's some public spots, there's some spots that are uh, private land open to public hunting. Um, but I'm also always trying to, to gain, new ground, um, in one way or another. So I knock on a lot of doors. Um, I'm always kind of picking away at new, uh, public land spots. And, you know, some of the, some of the areas that I used to hunt a lot, um, specifically the public areas, they got hammered by EHD back in 2012 and they're still, still not, you know, I, I, I had to give up on them for several years cause there just wasn't, wasn't any deer, uh, you know, or not a, not a single thing that I could locate worth going after. So I don't know, to answer your question, there's a, there's a lot of them. Um, you know, I'd probably say that I try to scout and monitor, you know, 12 to 15 different areas. Um, you know, and some of those are huge chunks of, you know, public land. Some are tiny little private pieces. Um, I hunt one piece that's, uh, one acre. You know, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's everything in between. So, um, yeah, I'm, I try to find anywhere that I can hunt around here. There's so many guys you kind of, you know, take what you can get. Yeah. Okay. So Joe, uh, how about first question, how many different parcels or properties do you typically try to have as options? And then can you detail your scouting and what makes your scouting next level? Yep. Um, yeah, Andy hit a lot of the points I would hit. Makes my summary a little shorter, but I right now I'm right around a dozen pieces of public land that I hunt, and that's my passion hunting it for my bow tag in my home state of Iowa um, is public land. Um, I I you know for my general either sex tag I I have a small acreage around my house and 
Iowa landowners get a uh, landowner's tag, but that's not really um, where where my passion is. It's public land um, and and going out where anybody else can go. Um, I can go whenever I want um, and scout. And it's probably they range from, you know, uh, 10 to 20 acres up to, you know, 1,000 acres or more. Um, but really... Um, Iowa doesn't have that much public land. Um, I'm fortunate to live in a part of the state that has more than other parts, but it's still not that much. And I'm a little envious of guys who have 10,000 acres of public out their back door. That'd be pretty cool. But uh, um, so I'm I'm hitting you know around a dozen. I also try to seek out and scout at least one new parcel a year, um, one or two. Um, that's kind of basically public land never stays the same. And Andy kind of mentioned this, you know, you, you may have EHD, you might have changes in hunting pressure. Um, a lot of the differences that I see, uh, because some of the smaller parcels, uh, you know, if depends if there's acorns or not, um, if there's much use by deer, they may be over here. And then another year there may be hardly any deer cause they're focused on crop fields you know, and surrounding private properties, um, if, if that, if say, if it's a travel corridor and there's not good bedding there. Um, so I, it's very important to have, I don't know, my rule of thumb is kind of twice as many spots as I could hunt in a season and, uh, both, you know, twice as many areas and twice as many setups in those areas as I could ever hunt in a season. And I, I I'm focused on playing the long game you know, kind of stacking the odds in my favor. So I'm constantly sorting um, what what are the best areas, you know, the highest odds that, you know, may have target bucks that I'm really interested in that I think are killable versus other ones that don't look so hot, you know, and I'm, I'm only hitting the top half or the top third um, on any given year. I'm still kind of watching those other areas. I put boots on the ground a couple times, and I may run a trail camera or two to see, how deer are moving and, and what's around. But um, that's kind of how I really try to stack the odds in my favor. Um, and then I, I know mentioned kind of a scouting routine. You know, Andy hit most of the good points. One thing I would definitely add, um, and I know he does this too, I haven't talked to him, but um, in-season scouting. So basically the, the minute I kill, I tag out, I'm like switched to scouting mode. Um, all my, if I had say any cameras set up, like watching for target bucks, I might adjust those. Maybe I, I might adjust them, might not, depending on where they are, but I'll, I'll set them in spots. I really like to set cameras in spots, leave them soaked the whole season and just observe in, in really kind of high impact spots. Don't check them. I'll leave them for months on end, observe natural deer movement. And then I can review those photos and really get a, very detailed understanding of what those deer are doing. Um, just about every spot I have ever done that with, I see distinct um, favorite you know, the deer trends according to weather, maybe maybe hunting pressure and other factors, um, different food sources lighting up, um, but particularly weather, wind, you know, wind temperatures. 
steer you certain areas based on certain conditions. I am absolutely certain of that. Um, on top of you know hunting pressure effects and everything like that. So, um, you know, the rest in season scouting, the sign is red hot. You can see it as it gets laid down. You can get a jump start on that spring scouting if you tag out. Like my favorite time to hunt is October. The vast majority of the time, I tag out in October, um, and I'm I'm switching immediately to okay what I want to look at for next year and then letting those trail cameras soak with intent over the kind of the winter months. Like if you got a big thick snowpack on the ground, um, it's not ideal scouting out there. That's when I play catch up. You know, I just actually, it's February, it's the second week of February right now. And I just finally um, caught up with all my trail cam photos from last fall, you know? So I had a number of cameras out just sitting there finally picked up the last couple and I've been looking at those photos and figuring out how deer are using those spots. Awesome. Jesse, what would you add as far as, uh, how many different places you have that you have access to and your scouting? Yeah. So obviously those guys gave great answers. Uh, and one thing I would point out, um, all three of us, Joe, Andy, and myself live in completely different geographic areas. Um, and therefore our answers are, I actually might, um, give different answers than them and not disagree, but, um, my answers would be different because I'm hunting a completely different, um, topographical, everything's different. Um, like Andy had said, um, scouting and looking for mass amounts of deer in the winter. Uh, I would agree with, I'd love to pound it right now. This is the one time of year that you can cover ground and go places that you should not go <laughs> because anything you bump, it, it doesn't matter. They're coming back. Uh, they're going wherever the food source is. Now, when I pound ground right now, I'm looking for sign that was November sign or October sign um, or, you know, obviously shed hunting. But uh, I personally think deer are, this sounds corny, but they're, they're kind of like men. Um, when they're young, they're all over the place. They're goofing around. They're with all the, you know, they're with the tribe. They're with the herd. Um, when they get to be older, which is what we're hunting, uh, when I'm in my forties, I don't really go out to the bars anymore. <laughs> I'm not traveling with the masses. I kind of like to be alone. I like to be out in my own little area in life and they bucks are the same way. So when I'm covering ground this time of year, I'm not looking for tons of tracks. Um, I'm looking for a giant, I'm looking for a big track and here, um, you can bump them. It's great this time of year and, and it's not a big deal. Uh, but here, everything is going to change. So bucks that are, are where they are right now, I might never see them um, in, the, you know, in, the, in that spot. It, everything is food source here. We get a lot of snow, and it's really cold. And then in the summer, it's going to be you know, in the 90s. So everything really swings. Um, so I'm not afraid to walk all over the place. And personally, I'm not looking for big mass quantities of deer. Um, those guys nailed it. I'm looking for next year's kill this year. Um, and when I scout year-round obviously um you got to study these food sources and you've got to remember what happened last year when when the soybeans turned all the bucks disappeared well you know they went to the soybeans so you have to play back on your knowledge from years in the past um and really uh i don't take any notes when i was a kid i took a lot of notes and then i found that i never go back and read them because i remember every buck from every year um you know when they switched gears when they disappeared when they showed up um I, I literally sit in my tree stand and think about that stuff. And I think Joe had mentioned that, you know, just, just, uh, you know, thinking and spending time scouting, uh, just thinking about scouting and thinking about hunting. 
um, remembering the change of things. Um, scouting, uh, the one thing I would say those guys didn't mention is, at least for me, I glassed like a maniac. I stay way away from um, my hunting spots. Uh, even when I'm scouting um, in the winter is about the only time I really walk through anything. Um, having good op- optics and having a good tripod for your optics to be on um, and knowing that that 15-minute window when animals are going to move or where they're going to show up, thats you have to learn that stuff. And it sounds weird, but once you kind of figure things out, it's almost like you have a sixth sense. No matter what state you go to, you'll see something and it, you'll just you'll know um, – I need to be here tonight at, at, at 6.45 at sunset because i got to see what comes out of that corner. Um, just picking up that sixth sense and, and making mental notes in your head from years in the past. Um, I'm not a big camera guy either, to be honest with you. Um, I like what Joe said about putting them up and leaving them. And um, I have cameras that are literally sitting out there that I put out in October, and I still haven't picked them up yet. I'm sure the batteries are dead, but um, – I'll know what was there and, and, uh, and I'll know what time of day they moved and stuff. But some guys check them every week and, you know, they wonder why, why these deer disappeared and you, you're spooking them, you know? So, so you, that, you talked that about, would be my take. you talked about glassing. Um, what times of year are you doing that glassing? Are you doing that all through the entire year and monitoring deer from a distance at all times of year? Or is that just in season from observation stands or can you elaborate on that a little bit? But before we, before we do get to the answer, to these questions from Jesse. Let's take a quick pause here for our Whitetail Properties segment of the day, and Spencer will get that started for us right now. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Andrew Schultz, a land specialist out of Illinois. And Andrew is going to be telling us about projecting the future of the land market in the Midwest. You know, I wish I was uh, able to tell the future, but um, all I can go off of is my clients and what I hear from people around me and obviously my experience since being in this business. And uh, the one thing that I seem to hear over and over again is that um, buyers and sellers wish they would have bought sooner and they wish they would have bought more. And uh, the reason for that is because if you look back at the history of land, it's appreciated so much over the years and uh, we expect it to continue appreciating because they're not making any more land. So there's a limited supply of this stuff, and uh, it's in high demand. And uh, people who have never owned land before, they're coming out and they're they're buying it because they understand that they're not making any more of it. So um, can I predict five years from now, 10, 20? Not exactly, but I can predict, or it's likely, that land is going to continue to appreciate, and you're going to wish that you would have bought more of it and bought it sooner. If you'd like to learn more. And to see the properties that Andrew currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Schultz. That's S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. Yeah, so I glass nonstop. In fact, um, glassing, at least in the east where I come from, it seems like nobody glasses. Um, I glass, I have a lot of spots um, that are exactly what you said, they're observation stands. Um, you couldn't kill a deer out of half my stands if your life depended on it with a bow. A lot of them are 30, 40 feet high, um, but I can see I can see all the way around me, you know, literally a mile. I mean, a lot of times I'm glassing three or four fields away um, or three or four hedgerows away or, or you know, and I'll, a lot of times, even if I only had 10 minutes, um, if my wife, I have a wife and, and three kids and run my own business. So free time is, 10 minutes to me is, is awesome. So if I can get out of here, hit the road and hit at least one of my spots in glass. 
um, that's five minutes of knowledge that I got that I know nobody else is doing. Um, so that, that's huge. And, and having very good optics um, is important and having a very good tripod if you're from the ground, having steady glass, it's amazing. It'll make marginal binoculars look better. So buy a good tripod and buy a good tripod head um, if that's all you can afford. And then someday when you can swing a little more money, get yourself some high-end optics and you will, I think my Swarovskis, when I bought them, they were like 1800 bucks and everybody thought I was nuts, but, uh, they're, they're like 15 years old. They're still amazing. And they're still, they're probably worth $2,400 now. And, and I would have bought three or four other sets of junk $300 binoculars. So having good optics, I pick up on so much stuff that, that I know nobody's, the people aren't seeing. And it's, it's really like cheating. I, I almost feel like a cheater with my optics because it's, it's, you can look through the woods with them. It's, it's great. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a great tip. I would, I would reiterate one other uh, kind of tip that uh, you mentioned is tracks. Um, that's something that I didn't really mention, but it's a huge component of what I'm doing all year long. I'm looking at tracks, and I know I, I've got some comments. Like some people are very skeptical that you can ID an individual buck's tracks, but I have been looking at the hooves of big bucks for quite a while now, and a big, mature, fully mature buck is not very common anywhere um, on anywhere that gets any significant hunting pressure. Um, there's not many of them, and usually their tracks stand out. Um, they're busy pawing and fighting and, you know, chasing does, and they're a lot of times chipped up, cracked up, whatever. They're usually big, not always, but usually much bigger, um, square, you know. They're fairly distinctive, so my That's ultimate right. goal... Yeah, is to find, you know, ID that buck's track, you know, um, and, you know, hopefully I say I am scouting in the winter and jump him out of a bed. I'm looking at that bed. I'm looking at that track, you know, um, and once I have that, that's a huge puzzle piece because then um, I know, you know, and this kind of shows the differences between each of us. I don't do that much glassing. Um, I used to do a ton of glassing, and frankly, I don't do that much anymore, probably because I don't have that much. I just don't find myself having a whole lot of free time in the evening. Um, but what I found is in the farm country deer that a lot of what I hunt, I'm able to walk the edges of, you know, crop fields and look for tracks. And then that's kind of, you know, it's kind of equivalent to grassing, glassing. I can see where the deer are coming in and going out and do that in midday, do a quick loop don't get anywhere near bedding. I'll do that all summer long and in the fall, uh, you know, just trying to figure out where those tracks, those tracks are probably made at night, but then I can get an, a lot, you know, a direction of travel. And if I did my homework previous winter scouting, I can say, you know, well, I need to hunt that bedding area a quarter mile back in or, you know, half a mile away. I think that's where he's bedding. So, so, how about this one? Um, uh, Jesse, you kind of alluded a little while back, or maybe it was Andy talking about Jesse, um, that you were killing several different bucks year after year in a row, like the first day of the season or right towards the beginning of the season. Um, so I want to talk about different times of the year. Um, and we'll try to make this a little bit simple. If you could only pick one week of the whole year, if I said that you had to kill a mature buck, your life depended on it, and you had only one week of the season to do it in. What 
one week period would that be? And uh, Joe, let's let's send it right back to you to start. Um. Well, assuming I'm on my home turf, areas that I've scouted already, um, it's the last week October for me. Um, that's kind of my bread and butter. Um, I, I've killed. I'm pretty sure I've killed a mature buck in every week of the season. Like we go from October 1st to then in November. And then of course we have late season two and I've had success then, but you know, basically October and November, I'm pretty sure I've had a had success every week of the season that last week, October. Um, it's just bucks are still pretty patternable. They're a little more visible. They, they uh, are on these pre-run patterns. Um, they're, they're kind of seeking out that first, doe that smells right and the first old does are just you know getting close um and that buck isn't necessarily he isn't cruising around probably you know through the day but you can catch him at first and last light um on these on these kind of rut travel routes already checking out the doe bedding areas checking out the major food sources um and and basically using his rut bedding and that's what i'm targeting is his rut bedding um and that's, it's usually, I don't want to say it's got a lot of sign, um, but um, because every buck's different. So, and a lot of older bucks don't leave hardly any sign. But it's uh, if you look at enough bedding area locations and buck beds, you start to realize some are clearly located with the intent of keeping an eye on the does in the area. Um, and those light up so consistently in late October. I mean, I, I just, I just see it every single year and I wait for, you know, whatever conditions, all betting is still, you know, conditional, uh, favor certain winds, certain temperatures. Um, I wait for those conditions. I don't touch, you know, I may not have set foot anywhere near, I probably didn't set foot anywhere near there since from the, you know, since spring when I picked a setup nearby and I'm going in there and hitting that. Um, ideally, I know there's that big buck in the area, either from those tracks, maybe from some, you know, trail cam photos over the course of the year. Um, and that's, that's kind of my uh, go-to, go-to time. So what can you elaborate? Be, but, can you elaborate on the, what you call the rut bedding? So uh, what yeah. what would the, what would a rut bedding area look like for a buck as opposed to where you might find him the rest of the year? Yeah, so um some so this gets a little into individual bucks. Some some bucks well, I'll I'll start this way. The oldest bucks in general have the smallest core areas. You know, you there's there's outliers, there's some that roam around. Um and within that core area, he's got, um, you know, a certain number of locations that he prefers to bed, um, seek safety. That's his primary uh, concern. But um, in that time period, right in the pre-rut, he is likely to use, you know, he, he won't sacrifice safety hardly at all, but he will favor the locations that are closest to um, uh, like a doe family group bedding. Um, and, and for instance, in, in hill country, something I've noticed is uh, what it's, I didn't coin this term, but uh, it's called a thermal hub. So thermal hubs are where kind of thermals cool. Um, uh, so you 
you know, kind of a low thermal hub where several, like several drainages tie together and the, the falling thermals in the evening come down from those, uh, say you have three, three drainage, three small drainages tie together. Falling thermals come down from each of those and kind of pool in a central area. And a lot of time you'll see a ton of sign down there. Rubs and scrapes get, to- it gets torn up. Well, often you can't hunt down there, but that buck is dropping in there and scent checking the surrounding area to see, you know, what's what with the does in the area in that late October time frame and a little bit into the rut. Um, and I basically, he's betting very, he's often betting on a secondary point right next to there, maybe a low bench. You can find those buck beds right in that close proximity. Um, and it's in a location that he can, uh, you know, observe with his nose, uh, which is their primary, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it's equivalent to our eyesight. We believe what we see. A deer believes what he smells. Um, he wants to be able to observe what is around. Um, and, uh, so that, so the, that it's hard to describe beyond if you see, a, a you know, a big bed, maybe with, a you know, an old rub right above it. It's in a very secure location that just makes you scratch your head and say, I, I don't know how to hunt this. Um, that's probably an indicator that it's in a really secure location. And a big buck, if he's in that area, is probably going to use that bed. And if it's close to, say, uh, you know, 150 yards up the ridge or whatever is a mega doe bedding area, well, that bed is probably getting used in the late pre-rut. You know, that's that's how I kind of uh, look at it. Awesome. I think it was a great point that Joe said, and you don't hunt that spot. Are you... <laughs> You can't, even though you know that deer is there, those thermal, there's a reason why he's there. And people find yep. that sign and hang a stand there and they screw it up. Don't hunt those spots, but know how to get, you know, get a, <laughs> get close to those spots without screwing it. How would you, yeah. how would you yeah, do I, that, Jesse? You want to use it to your, you want to do, use that to your advantage, you know, like that's, that's, right. that's a great point, you know. It's so just smart you can't hunt a spot. Yep. Just because you can't hunt a spot. You can still use it to your advantage. So anyway, go on, right. Jesse. No, I was just, it was a great point that you said, um, you know, you, you can't hunt those spots. And so many people don't have the discipline to not hunt that spot. You blast that spot, you know that spot is there, and when you see those does uh, upwind of that spot, you, you and you can't find that buck, you know he's probably using that area that you scouted. And you try and hunt the periphery of that with the wind in your favor at all times. And when that wind switches, you get out of there. <laughs> but you try and get lucky and cut him off. Um, but you never hunt those spots. And for Joe to make that comment, um, that's that's the sign of a killer. He know uh, he knows that you don't go in there. Where a lot of people would never make that comment that it's an unhuntable spot. That's smart. Yeah, it's a great point. All right, so Jesse, how about back to the original question? You get one week of the season. What is it? Yeah, so uh, Joe kind of had mentioned it as well. Uh, it depends on the state. If it's my home state, um, I like to I like to do my homework way ahead of time, and I like to kill them fast. Uh, I like to kill them. We have a lot of pressure here. We have small block woods, and we have a lot of agriculture. So um, these guys can screw up the woods real quick, and everybody here hunts, so there's a ton of pressure. Um, I like to get, get the job done. Um, everybody says, oh, there's an October lull. Well, that's good. I hope they stay out of the woods because all I need is, is that last 15 minutes of light or that, or that first 40 minutes of light when they're going back into the bedding grounds. I really try and do my homework in my home state 
and uh, I try and get them killed. And um, New York, where I live, this is not a huge trophy state. It's not like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kill a booner here. Um, I'm trying to kill a good, uh, respectable, you know, 130, 140 class deer is like killing a 180 in, in Iowa. So it's it's not like uh, I'm too worried that, um, you know, if I tag a 140 inch, I'm, I'm not going to be sad that there was a 180 here. But I didn't get it. I'm not yep. worried about that. So I, I'm, I'm killing my home state buck. I'm not hunting a, a world-class place, and I'm getting out of here as fast as I can and going to um, Ohio or Kansas or Illinois. Uh, and, and truthfully, if I was to hunt out-of-state, any out-of-state guy, if you don't have the knowledge um, of the ground the way, the way Joe does in Iowa or, or Andy in Michigan, um, and my advice would be go November, get in your truck November 5th, November 6th, start driving, Try and be in a stand or in a glassing point November 7th and hunt sun up to sundown for the next seven to ten days. You can sleep and relax and drink beer the rest of the year, but for those seven to ten days, punish yourself, and you will kill a giant. Maybe not a giant, but if you're hunting out of state and don't know where you're at, punish yourself for those seven to ten days. Keep your eyes open all the time, and those are your best odds for a non-resident. Um, if I talk to some of my other buddies who are world-class guys, um, they will say, um, the end of the rut, the end of November is when the true giants show up because they've bred everything in their circle and they're starting to cruise around looking for other unbred does. Um, so for an average guy like me, I'm happy to kill a, a 150, 160, November 7th, November 14th to the 18th. Um, that's when I want to be out of state for out-of-state hunting. In your home state, you know, uh, it, it all comes down to what you see. But for me, I like that first week. There, there's, there's like eight bucks together. Um, they're all hitting food sources. If you see one buck, you're seeing every buck in the block, and you're going to be able to, to, to pick the one you want. So I like I like that for, for me. That's great advice. That's great advice about, you know, the – differentiation between your backyard where you're dialed in and going in somewhere new or even somewhere you've done a little bit of scouting. Uh, I, yeah, you're, you're spot on there. You know, peak rut is where it's at. If you want to go in somewhere new and, you know, try to get the job done. Um, especially, you know, at a long distance from home. Thanks. Andy, what are your thoughts on this? You got your one week, which is it? Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to echo what, uh, what Jesse said. You know, for me, um, specifically in Michigan, you know, it's hard for me to pick something other than that first week of the season. Um, I've been pretty successful. Um, I, I definitely don't kill one every year on the first week, but um, I've killed enough of them, and I've, I've been on enough mature deer, and I've had opportunities at enough mature deer on that first week for that to really be my favorite time. Um, and I know things can kind of come into play like, you know, weather and all that, but just the, the, you know, if I do my work, uh, my due diligence in September, I should be on a good one that first few days of the season. If I'm not, I didn't work hard enough and I didn't prepare and I slacked. So I really love that time. Um, in fact, I've, I've started doing a lot of my traveling out of state, uh, just to hunt opening days. Um, you know, uh, I, I try to never miss an opening day in Ohio and I've been successful opening day there. 
Um, same with Kentucky. Um, killed a couple down there in the first few days of the season. So I really like that time. The deer are unpressured. Um, they're they're moving. You can you can still catch them on food sources. Uh, not so much in Michigan, but when I as soon as I cross those lines, you know, food sources are are fair game. Now in Michigan, um, yeah, I can't even. I don't know that I've ever killed a deer on a food source here, a mature deer. Um, I'd have to really look back through through the, the hunts, but I'm an, I'm almost always tight to bedding. Um, on the big mature deer, um, I got to get in in the cover. The, the 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 food sources are loaded with hunters, so um, you know I usually have to get in tight. Um, but I, I really like that October time frame. Um, you know, even mid October, like Jesse said, you know, if you know what you're doing, um, you know, you're still on deer at that time frame. You just you, you really have to you know fall back on your scouting and your knowledge of the area and what mature deer do at that time. But when I'm traveling out of state, um, I almost never hunt the rut here in Michigan. Um, I might get a sit or two, um, but that's usually when I'll take like a trip to when I draw my Iowa tag or, you know, I've been to Illinois and Iowa. And um, like Jesse said, uh, that November, you know, for me, it's uh, probably that November 5th, 6th time frame to the 12th. That's when I seem to see the biggest mature bucks on their feet and where I've had a lot of success tons of midday kills. Um, I really like that time frame, um, you know, to, to travel, uh, to a good, you know, a, a state that has, you know, uh, a more target rich environment, I guess. And I've never, um, I've never, uh, hunted anywhere, um, during that Thanksgiving time, um, with a bow, you know, I've, I've been to states where their gun season is, is open, but that's something that is kind of, uh, you know, possibly in the works especially um next time I do an Iowa tag I might uh focus on that time um because I'd really like to kind of extend my season and maybe you know focus a little more rut sits here in Michigan but um those would probably be my two uh my two favorite times uh you know times of the year you know if I had to if I had to choose a, a week or so um it would probably be somewhere in those two time frames yeah, that that would be wise, Andy, coming to Iowa. Um, you know, it, it, both of you touched on that. The second half of the rut, you know, right at, as lockdown lets loose, um, be kind of well, it depends where you're at in Iowa, but really from uh, November 16th, 17th, 18th, that's when lockdown starts to kind of um, fall away. And for the next week to 10 days, um, that, yeah, that is your opportunity to, see that world-class deer walking around doing something really dumb because he's just wore out and he, he's looking for, you know, one last, uh, doe and that, that can be the downfall of him. So, um, and yeah, that's such a cool, yeah, hunting guys are at an all time low at that time period. I think that was an invite. Didn't, did Joe just not invite us to Iowa? <laughs> yeah, he I think did. That's yeah, right. totally. I think he said, that would be a great idea for you guys to come to yeah. Iowa at that time. <laughs> you know, that's uh, Joe, Joe, you, it's a, it's such a cool opportunity. Um, you know, there's very few states that have that time frame still open when it's yeah. archery season. And, you know, I've never capitalized it. I kind of kicked myself, you know, we, you know, once gun season starts here, it's like, you know, I just don't get out. I don't, I don't really enjoy that as much. Um, I'll get out a little bit here and there, but you know, it's kind of lets the, 
the wind out of my sails. So I'm, I'm always looking for ways to kind of extend that archery season. And I think, I think I could get in a couple other, uh, you know, maybe a couple other States or at least some more time in other States and still be able to, you know, hit Iowa at a good time. If I push it back towards that later part of November. Yeah. You have to be a little more dialed into what the deer are doing. So like blasting or or observations, those are, that's more important than ever before. Cause a lot of times Mm -hmm. the weather's colder, uh, the does are stock, you know, piled up on the prime food sources, whether that's acorns or cut corn or, you know, whatever. Um, and you, but you find those big doe concentrations, the bucks are circling in the background. Um, they're still, you know, they still got that, that urge. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, uh, I remember even you, last time you drew an Iowa tag, you had a lot of, you had a, some action packed hunts in late November, if I remember right. So, yeah, yeah, no, definitely on the, on the agenda. So we just talked a little bit about late November. I was going to ask you, Joe, to elaborate on how you're hunting that time frame, but you just did. So now I want to go to the opposite and both you, Andy and Jesse mentioned that first week of the season. And, um, you said, Andy, that if you did your due diligence in September, you'd have a good chance. Um, can you elaborate on how you actually go about doing that due diligence to allow for a successful early season hunt? And, and what do you do specifically those first couple of days of the season in a spot that have made that so successful for you? Um, well, you know, I, I, I will definitely, uh, do a lot of glassing, you know, for, for, you know, to be specific, I, I don't, I don't waste a ton of time glassing like in August. I, I do it because I enjoy it then. But from what I've found is, you know, there's can be a lot of things that change, you know, between August and say mid September or even late September. So I'll do it a little bit here and there in August. Um, you know, I'm definitely running some cameras and stuff and kind of monitoring that way. But, um, you know, more so when the season gets closer, you know, that two week period before the season, that's when I really start bearing down. I'm like, you know, now the deer are in more of a, a pattern that's at least closer to the season. Now, a lot of times things change, like right, even, you know, a couple days before the season, but I'm really trying to find a buck or two that is showing some sort of movement, you know, and it, it you know, I might glass them on a food source, you know, at last light. Um, but you know, where I hunt, you know, those food sources are gonna, There's going to be guys there. There's going to be guys there on, you know, opening evening, no doubt about it. Um, so more so I rely, you know, the, the areas that I hunt, I know intimately. I mean, I know them inside and out. I know where the does bed, when there's a good buck there, I know where the uh, mature buck beds are. So when I see a deer show up and it might be a visual, it might be a trail camera, it might be just a big track when I'm walking the the perimeter of the food sources, you know, I have a pretty good idea of where that deer is bedding on a given locate on a given wind direction, you know, so I kind of fall back on all my scouting that I did in the, you know, the postseason, you know, before green up, Um, you know, so I just, I feel like I just know those areas so well when a deer does show up. I have a pretty good idea how to get them. Now, you know, there's always things that kind of come up and change and, and, uh, you know, you get caught flat footed sometimes, but for the most part, if one shows up and he shows a weakness early in the season, I'm usually off the food source, tighter to bedding cover. Um, 
you know, that could has been within 50 yards of the bedded deer. It's been within a hundred yards. It just depends. But typically, um, from what I've seen, even in a, a high pressure state like Michigan, if you can get back into that security cover into their, their, their core area, their bedding area, where they feel comfortable, where they've survived for years and years, they will move. Now they want, might not move far, but they'll move and they'll get up and they'll, you know, mill around a little bit and they'll, you know, inch their way away from that bedding area. And you got to be within that zone in that safe zone where they feel safe. And, that's right. you know, that's the whole balancing act of, you know, shooting a buck out of his bed. You got to determine how close you can get without being busted. And that's the key. You got to get in without getting busted, but you want to be close enough where they're still going to move in daylight, you know, in shooting hours towards your direction. And it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to kind of master. And I certainly haven't mastered it. I certainly screwed up a lot, but that's how I kill the majority of my bucks in October. You know, I'm tight within the bedding within a hundred yards for sure. Hmm. Yep. Yep. Andy, that's, uh, even here in Iowa, you know, I have not killed a public land buck on a food source in Mm -hmm. two days. So, um, it just doesn't happen or, you know, um, where, where you got to get it done is tight to bedding. That's, that's for sure. It that depends on pressure. It also depends a little bit on terrain. I think, um, you know, here, yeah, I, I know I don't have the pressure that you guys deal with. Um, but still, I'm within 200 yards of bedding. You know, it's hard in, in hill mm-hmm. country. It's hard to get within 100 yards very often. Um, it yeah. covers a lot of times a little more open. And we have high deer densities, so there's deer everywhere, and that's another challenge that's, is just trying to not That's to, a good point. It, that's blow, a good point. Blow, I don't, blow I don't have a lot. Out. Yeah, I don't have a lot of hill country here at all, but I, uh, you mentioned something high deer density. I've hunted some uh, very high deer density areas out of state. Um, and, you know, one thing I noticed there is that the deer, um, you know, at least in that area, they would move quite far from bedding. Um, you know, there'd be uh, groups of does and like these younger bucks that would start moving very early. So they got all these kind of sets of eyes that are heading towards the food yeah. sources early and then these these big bucks you know it's it's kind of almost like a you know they're sending out the dummies you know early and if you know the whole herd is out there pounding away at the food source those big ones get up and we we saw some really good deer and shot a couple really good deer in food sources kind of in those lower pressure states you know you know on a food source and and it's just the competition is so high it just it stimulates earlier movement but the trick is you got to stay undetected from all those, you know, dozens and dozens of deer that come by first. Jesse, would you add anything on the early season front or elaborate on this, you know, how close you can be to beds or anything that Joe and Andy have talked about here? Yeah. Uh, those guys nailed, um, they made great points, especially being that, um, this platform you have with three different guys in three different areas, you're really getting three different um, techniques and three different styles, which is actually good. I think is really good for your listeners. Um, uh, I would, I would, uh, the only thing I would touch base on what they said is uh, like where I'm from, we have a lot of hedgerows, big agriculture and small black woods. So um, you really, I really like killing my home state deer. I mean, truthfully, I like killing them. If I can get them killed the first day, two, maybe three days, that's 
that's my goal. And I will put, even if I got to take those three days off, that's when I try and get it done. Um, they haven't been screwed up yet. Most guys, um, that's when and guys are going to, you know, guys are going to start bombarding the woods. Um, one thing I study along with all the deer sign is I study the hunter sign. Um, I, a lot of these guys don't take down any of their stands. Um, so I use these guys, um, they will literally pattern the deer for you because you can tell when these guys start hitting the woods because the deer's patterns will change. I try and kill these deer one before they, before they change. Um, and if I can glass a, a, a shooter buck, um, I like to see, I, I don't care if I got to kill him in the morning or evening. And if, and if I know where he's at, like, obviously I have three hung stands and bedding grounds. However, I always have seven or eight sets of stands that are ready to go with foot pegs and with pull-up cords ready to rock. And a lot of times I will stage these stands just in the, you know, on the edge of the woods, on the ground. I know it sounds crazy, but that way, um, if, if I know where a buck is at and he's bedded and, and I think he's, you got to know the ground. If I think, all right, I can sneak in this woods. I think the deer's bedding 150 yards on the, on the, you know, Northwest or I'm sorry, uh, Northeast corner. So he can wind everything. Um, I'm going to try and slip in there um, and hang a stand 30 yards inside the woods. Um, I'm going to glass him even before the season starts. I'm going to glass him. If, um, if I'm not seeing him, I'm going to have another stand and I'm going to go another 30, 40 yards. I know it sounds stupid, but I will literally have four or five stands and I'll just hang them and keep cheating in. And I won't take any of them down because if the wind isn't right or the wind is a little more out of the south, I can drop back and I'm not screwing anything up. Uh, and then usually for an evening hunt, uh, that, those would be obviously for morning hunts in the woods. Um, and I've killed numerous deer where I've gone in, glassed him on a morning hunt, and I thought, man, if I was just 60 yards closer, um, they'll go in and bed, and a lot of times I'll back out. I know where he's bedded, and if I think the wind is right, I, I'll go for a throw and hang a stand right in where it's a horrible spot um, that every deer after they get past me is going to wind me. Um, that's when you got to be really confident to do that. And you got to know, okay, I'm, I'm either going to kill them or blow them out. And I would say, which is kind of crazy, but 70% yep. of the time, I, if I make that move, I kill him. And if I don't, usually I don't blow him out. He's spooked because every deer that's gone past me is snorting and blowing. He doesn't know what happened. I don't care what the other deer think. I'll back out. I'll slip out of there and I won't do that again. I'll circle back in the next morning and start it all over again. Uh, if he, if that buck goes by me, he's getting shot. And by the time he wins me, he's dead. So yeah, he doesn't know what's going on, but that's a, that's how I do it here. Um, but I like that early season. And, and if you work hard at it and you really, you play chess with it and really think these deer aren't smart. I mean, I know people, I think I piss people off of that comment, but deer are not smart. They're an animal. They're, they're a habitual animal. They have wonderful, um, natural sense of smell. They have great eyes and they have great hearing. They're not smart. We are smart. So if you can just study their natural reactions, you're going to kill them. So don't psych yourself out when you're hunting these deer. It's an animal. You're going to yep. kill them. You just have to be yep. smarter than them. And we are smarter than them. Yep. You are, you are spot on. And that I really like how you said you got to go in with, you know, you're going to kill or blow them out. And that is a trait I've noticed, you know, you, you, 
you have it. I noticed other other you know hardcore killers have it, and that is a mentality you have to have. You know, you have to set the groundwork, have that confidence, and then you go in yes. with that mentality. Because otherwise, you hang back, you know, and you miss an opportunity. And early season, yeah, I, particularly, you, you've got to be right on it. Both you and Andy mentioned that. You know, the, uh, patterns change so fast those first few days. Of, uh, that's right. Everything changes. Has, the crops change. The, yep, the, the yep. people's pressure change. Um, yep. And, you know, Joe, the only reason I learned that, you got to learn by mistakes. The only reason I learned that, yep. I, I used to kill big deer with just grit, just hunting. Before I had kids, I hunted nonstop. And I found yep. that, <laughs> truthfully, I wasn't really efficient. Um, I killed big deer just by being a tough, nonstop, relatively smart hunter. But once I had kids in my own business, um, I took more chances. I thought, you know what, I, I don't have time. I can't hunt for the next four days because I've got the kids. i got to get them off the school bus. I'm going for this buck tonight. I think everything's yep. right. Screw it. I don't care if I screw it up. And all of a sudden, it was like, drilled them. And I take more chances now and do the craziest stuff. I've killed some deer in the dumbest tree stands. I'm not a very big guy. I only weigh 150, 60 pounds. I have killed deer out of stands that I've carried in there, climbed up the tree, hung it, and literally sat in it that night uh, in a sumac tree that's the size of my thigh and shot the best buck <laughs> around. But yep. you've got to yep. take calculated risks. You're you're exactly that's right that's exactly my story too uh, you know once I started having kids you know yeah I grew up hunting 60 70 80 you know bow hunts in a year that's <laughs> long a thing of the past and I'm not going to be getting back to that anytime soon if ever um, and now yeah I want a, you know I want my target buck in under 10 hunts you know um, and that's uh, you've got to do so much groundwork before that and when the time is right. You have to just go all in. You know, I, I That's right. sat in a edge of a milo field and killed a 175 inch ten pointer on the ground. You know, something <laughs> ridiculous. He was he was going to bust me four four times out of five. You know, or two times out of three, but he didn't, and I got an arrow at him. You know, so um, that you gotta and and to get to that point, you know, it's a journey. You can't skip to that point. You know, like. I think all three of us, we needed a huge amount of time out there just to kind of build that basic woodsmanship, you know, basic understanding of how deer, you know, operate and the phases of their, you know, the season as deer see it and what hunting pressure means and, you know, the good access routes and, you know, how to play the wind and just all the fundamentals. It's so important. You got to, you know, for the younger and newer hunters out there, just enjoy that ride. And then you'll get to a point where you can start making some of those decisions. You know, I, I don't mean that in any kind of arrogant sense. It just takes time. You know, it takes a ton that's, of time to master. So, that's yeah, you can't, right. you can't, uh, you can't buy that, that time. You know, I think I, oh. I may have touched that, uh, touched on that in my, my DIY Q&A, but. You know, I, I think like you'd be hard pressed to find a guy that's been hunting a, a long time that's been super successful. That you know, like I said, at some point in his life, he devoted everything to hunting. I mean, it literally, you know, every day of the year he was doing something, scouting, hunting every day of the season. 
and making a ton of mistakes. And you you got to kind of go through those. It's like trial by fire. you kind of got to go through that to develop your own style, to develop your own skill. And then as it develops, you can, you can back off, you can hunt much less, but the, you know, the preparation is where it's all done. You know, all the scouting, all the archery, you know, fine tuning your setups, learning your areas and, and, you know, intimately and and learning the, you know, specific deer from year to year and their tendencies. Then you're able to make these much more uh, informed decisions. I call them almost instinctual because you, you've done it so many times you've made these mistakes and you, you eliminated them. So you, you make far less mistakes and it, things almost come like I'm a, I'm a, I describe myself as like a feel hunter. I get like these feelings and, it, and all it is is just recall of experiences that I've had over and over again and mistakes and successes that, you know, you get these feelings like this is the spot, you know, or I need to push in a little bit further. I think I can push in a little bit further. And you get these feelings and what you find is over time, these feelings are right more and more often because you, you've tried it. You're not sitting back, you know, being, you know, lazy or, you know, you're, you're being aggressive and you're making those, those moves and you're learning, you're learning what you can get away with. You're learning what you can't, and you're developing your right. own style. And it's just, right. you have to go through that. Yeah. And, and I feel, yeah. I feel, I feel bad for some of these guys that, you know, kind of join the beast and they're already married and they're, you know, you know, maybe in their mid thirties and they already got kids and stuff and they, they have the heart, you know, they want to, they want to do it. And it's that, you know, really it's like, you know, you, it's those young guys that, you know, they're in high school and, you know, just out of high school and they're just pounding away at this and they're developing, you know, their craft and, and honing their skills and, and those, you, you need that time. And when you're married with kids, it's like, you know, it's, it's it's really hard to do it at that time because you know you're taken away from something that's much more important you know than being a good deer hunter so and those guys can also know. those guys can also everybody has a different um success platform um and going out finding a even if even if all you're finding in in a if in your state a 120 is a good deer and you can or a decent deer if you can find a 120 and and you don't have a lot of time and you can figure that deer out and you can put a clean shot on that deer, uh, you should be proud of that deer. If you know, especially if you're raising a couple kids, that's my, my trophy standards <laughs> have gotten lower. Um, and I, because of that, you know, because of the lack of the time, however, when I kill something now, it is so much sweeter, um, than the, the big ones I killed 15 years ago, because, um, you know, I, I killed them with blood, sweat and tears before. And now I'm, I'm killing them with quick, clean knowledge. And even though those guys, uh, you know, you don't want to tell those guys, ah, if you're 35 and you're just now taking it serious, um, you're really never going to be an elite guy. That's, that's not true. I mean, everybody's eliteness is, is different. You know, uh, like yeah. I, I will never be at Joe's caliber. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not, um, I'm hunting a different, I'm hunting a different, you know, just a different I, world. You're in hunting a different be. state, man. You're hunting yeah, a different yeah, exactly. state. That's the difference between you and me. I, I freely admit that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, and it's, but I'm very proud of, it sounds stupid, I've got some, you know, some big deer, um, and I'm very proud of them that are from uh, other states, Kansas and, and, and Arizona and, and Montana. Um, and I'll tell you, there's a couple 110 inches, 120 inches that, that uh, are on my floor that are skull mounts that are the biggest trophies 
and they came from from working hard in hard to kill states. So everybody's trophy is different. And if you did a good job and you're enjoying it, um, it really isn't a. It sounds stupid, but it it is about killing big stuff. But those guys can't feel bad if you're just taking it serious at 35 and you got three kids. Man, go out and and live for the moment. Even if you only get five sits, breathe that air, that that fall air, and and take the whole thing in. and do the best you can. You can't compare yourself to, um, you know, everybody else. You've, you've got to try and beat yourself every year and be happy with that. Yep. That's right. Amen, brother. That's point. Yeah. Because we, we really, we, we all get, and I'm bad at, I've been bad at this, this big buck thing kills all of us. I mean, <laughs> it will eat yep. you up and you will become consumed. And sometimes you don't even enjoy it. I've got buddies all over the country that are, legit they're like uh, they're they're world-class guys um and they'll get so they're passing up 180s because they know there's a you know a 211 and it's like dude you're killing yourself and um that's why they're world-class guys but don't don't uh don't get down on yourself for killing 150 inch (laughs) enjoy it that's a great buck and, and and be happy you know yeah absolutely man oh man i am uh I am loving this conversation, but we are going to hit pause for one quick second here to take our final break of the day and thank our partners at Matthews Archery. And as we've been discussing over a handful of our past episodes, Matthews launched their new bow this past fall, the Matthews Triax. And today we're going to hear just a bit more about the new rig from world-class archer Levi Morgan. You know, the Triax was, I think, originally built for the whitetail hunter tree stand blind so compact and and uh quiet but you know on my adventure hunts what i found is i love it for everything i love it for mountain hunts whitetail hunts tree stand blind it doesn't matter because i love the idea of a compact bow um but i only love that idea if i'm not sacrificing accuracy and with the track i definitely found out real quick that i wasn't um it's just good at shooting bows i've ever shot in my life it's it's fast and quiet and so small dead in the hand literally it's a killing machine and pretty much every scenario we put it through and, and we put it through the test last year a lot of other people i've talked to have just mentioned how quiet it is how this new um stabilizing system and the silencers are making a big impact is that something you've noticed too and is that substantially different than other bows you've shot yeah i think i've i've learned that for sure throughout the year i honestly knew it was quiet whenever i shot it but what we really was kind of the telltale sign was we started you know i i was hitting animals lower and lower and in the heart because i always aim low because of white tails ducking on me in the past and so i've just kind of programmed myself to aim low and i just kept hitting them right where i was aiming in the heart and, and which is a good thing but i felt like i was flirting with being a little too low so we started going back through the footage this year and it was amazing at how these animals were just standing there at 40, 50 yards, taking these shots um, with the tracks and not budging at all. So I think that was a true testament to, to how quiet these bows really are. If you'd like to learn more about the Matthews tracks, you can visit MatthewsInc.com. And now back to the show. So when you're when you're making this switch, because we've talked a lot about all three of you, and, and 
I just want to say the last like 20 minutes you guys have been talking back and forth has been like some of my most enjoyable time on the podcast. Like I should just let, let you guys just sit here and talk and I should just sit out of it and not say anything. <laughs> well, we're going to Iowa in November. You can come and video us. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We're going to do this at Joe's house. <laughs> I like that idea. I like that idea. You guys draw a tag. Let me know. <laughs> uh, yeah, the same here, man. You could come to New York anytime. <laughs> Great trade, right? Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so we're, we're, you guys are talking a lot about these lessons that you've learned the hard way, though, um, and how it took those those challenges for you to now be where you're at at this point. Can each of you, and let's start with you, Andy, um, can each of you point to a specific challenge that you had as you've been through this journey to become a better hunter for these big, mature bucks? So a specific challenge that really changed the game for you? You had this aha moment because of this realization or this issue. Um, Andy, can you start on something like that? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few. Uh, you know, one that stands out is, is you know, mature deer are, are different, right? They're not uh, They're not like every other deer in the woods. And that's, that's where most guys, probably your, your most average guys, that's probably where you know, they misstep right off the bat. You know, they, they want to see deer, uh, you know, if they see, you know, five, you know, five or six bucks, you know, they're coming back in and they're, they're bragging about it or they're, they're excited. You know, oh, I saw a three point and a six point and a hundred inch eight point, you know, a bunch of does and, you know, that's all fine and dandy, but really a mature deer is a different animal. Um, and they behave different. They have different tendencies and that's, you gotta, you gotta make that switch um, you know, to hunting a mature deer and really, uh, kind of learning the tendencies of a mature deer, at least in the area you're hunting. And that's obviously, you know, different for different areas, but, you know, for, for me, Michigan, I'm going to kind of focus on that. It's, you know, I've always had to kind of get close in their, they're close to their bedding area and, uh, you know, really kind of fine tune that strategy. Um, you know, just getting in tight where they feel comfortable moving in daylight. Um, you know, and the next thing I would probably say, uh, like timing, you know, you've, I've wrote a couple articles about, you know, the, my first sit, you know, in any location is my best chance at a mature buck. And that's, I've, I've shown that time and time again, through my own hunts, I think 80% of my kills are on the very first sit in that spot. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to save those spots, my high percentage spots for when the conditions are right, when they're perfect. Um, you know, and that might be the time of year. It might be, uh, you know, the time of year where that area tends to draw in a mature deer. It might be a mature deer, his tendency in that area, like he, he shows up, uh, you know, early season, or maybe, you know, it's a, an area where he, every year he shows up during the rut. So I'm, I'm going to focus my sits during that time. Um, so just keeping the pressure low off those spots and moving in when the, the conditions are right. Um, and then, you know, for me, I've talked about it a, a couple times, um, but you, you got to be able to pull that shot off on uh, on a, right. a deer. And you got to, you, you, I'm sure we all know, um, we probably have a buddy, we probably have a few of them that would have an amazing wall of bucks if they were able <laughs> to capitalize on the shot. Yeah. Um, I know I do, um, you yeah. know, and I know they're going to listen to this and, 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 you know, I'm not poking fun at all. I've, I've tried to, to, to help you know most of them through that because i went through it you know there was yep. um a time yeah 
and, you know, for me, you know, I'm kind of an archery nut. So I, you know, I'm, I'm as into archery as I am into hunting. So I, I, you know, somewhere in the middle of my career, I developed severe target panic. Um, crazy. Uh, like to the point where I was, I couldn't even put my pin on something without punching off that trigger. And I remember, I remember calling Jesse one year and I was like, man, I don't know if you remember this, Jesse, but I called you. I was like, gosh, you know, I, I think I screwed up on like three big bucks in like a two week period. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so frustrated. And, you know, you had like an amazing year. He killed that giant in Kansas. And you're like, man, I don't, I don't know what to say. I, I feel bad because I had such a good year. <laughs> you know, it was, I was just, I was just looking for, you know, I was, I was trying to get some advice on like, you know, maybe someone that had been through that, but it didn't sound like you had. But, uh, I've never had it. I've, I've always heard of it. Yeah. I don't believe in that stuff. I don't listen to other people. I don't let people get in my head. I don't even want to listen to this. But, I've been putting my, my finger in my ear the whole time. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, start talking about the, something else. Yeah, that's yeah. right. La, 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 la. Yeah. Um, that's good. You got to be got really to don't even, don't even think about it. But for me, um, yeah. you know, that was a, a huge challenge. Um, but I worked through it. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to a, a lot of guys, a lot of good archers. And, you know, I developed, a you know, my own way of shooting, you know, and it kind of beat that target panic. And for me, it's a, a much more relaxed way of shooting. There's no anticipation. There's no urge to rush the shot. I'm in complete control. So ever since then, um, I can honestly say, like, my shots have all been, you know, on the money. And, and you know, it's a wild animal, so, you know, they move sometimes. Things aren't always perfect, and there's branches and twigs and whatnot. But, you know, as far as my shot execution, it's where I want it to be. And, and uh, you know, that was that for me personally was a big challenge. But I would say those three things, you know, kind of some challenging and some, you know, you know, I guess stepping stones that kind of helped me be more successful. That's great. What about you, Jesse? Uh, hit me with a question again. We got so off on that. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm just curious about what, you know, if there was a specific challenge or aha moment that happened over the course of your, you know, growth as a deer hunter that has made a big difference for you that you can point to. Uh, yeah, I would say, um, uh, you know, I think everybody does have an aha moment. Um, and I would say, um, I, I definitely did when I was probably, you know, I, I grew up, um, just a, a pretty humble farm kid. And really, uh, my dad was a good hunter, but he was a meat hunter. Like I actually, I don't think my dad has ever killed a buck. He's literally, um, he was always just go out. He's a woodsman, uh, kill rabbits, kill woodchucks, coon, fox, everything, you sell the pelt, you live off the land type of guy. He is not a trophy hunter. So I just grew up, um, and it really turned out good for me. I grew up just, truthfully, just a murderer, just just knowing how to move, when to move, when not to move, and kill stuff. Um, my parents divorced when I was really young, so I didn't see my dad a lot. Um, and really one of my jobs at my mom's was, you know, just, just kill stuff, just get stuff killed. Um, so, you know, when I was probably 20, I would say, I had killed you know, luckily a couple decent bucks, but nothing big. And I, and I, and they weren't calculated kills. They were a kid walking out to a tree sitting in it. Cause his dad sat there 30 years ago. Uh, and one day I was sitting in a tree and, um, I had seen a good deer in this area. And I thought, why is this deer not here? You know, I'm doing everything that my dad taught me. I'm doing everything that everybody tells me to do. And I'm just having average success. And then I realized like, I'm literally sitting here listening to everybody else's advice. 
And um, I kind of, I, I, it was actually good when I kind of had a falling out with my dad. So I kind of took everything he had ever said to me in my life and I questioned it. And I thought, you know what, I got to start evaluating everything and take my own knowledge and my own notes. And I literally remember the moment I grabbed my bow, hooked onto it, I lowered it, and I walked out of that woods and I realized right away I had been walking into this woods the way my dad taught me to. Um, we would park the truck on this laneway, walk all the way down this hedgerow with the wind at our back, and then walk into the woods and sit in a tree. This is stupid. And I realized right then, like, he's not really that great of a hunter. He's a gun hunter. Um, and right then, I started studying how things work. And I, I literally can't even tell you the confidence that just shot through me right away because I knew, like, I already am going gonna, gonna to be better than my dad. Like, this, this is stupid. How could you even contemplate going in the way that we've always been doing it? I started studying other guys, and I realized, like, they're screwing everything up. And um, that was, you know, I could, that was the first year I killed, a, uh, like, 100, and, you know, which for New York is big. Like, I think he netted 132. Uh, and I have killed a, a Pope and Young Buck ever since every year. Since I think there might be one year that I shot one with a muzzleloader instead of the bow. But, um, but that was, and that's, in my opinion... That's something everyone should do. I think you should take what Joe says, analyze it, and, and really think about it. But, but uh, don't be afraid to question it and put it to the test as far as where you live in your style. Take what Andy says. Don't put anything any of us say in gold. And anything these guys write, it's great that they're writing articles and stuff, and, and I've learned a lot from a lot of their articles, but a lot of it is nonsense. So don't take it uh, to heart. Find your own style and find your own way and, and master it. Be a master of your style. And I think that has helped me a lot. I forget. I, I literally just forgot about everything anybody had ever said to me about hunting. And I started my own studying of how things work. I kept my own notes and, and I, I worked off my own results. And really, um, it has changed and I've, and I've varied it, but, but it's, it works. And, and that was my turning. That was my big turning moment. And, um, you know, I would recommend everybody take advice, but evaluate it and, and, and test it and then take your own notes and don't be afraid to be different. Don't be afraid to have a different style. If you notice everything Andy says and everything Joe says and everything I say, it's really slightly different and we're all very successful guys. Everybody has a style and it works. Such, such great points. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. I, I completely yeah. agree. Um, you know, you got to make your own way. So, yep. So, Joe, what would be your take on this question? Yeah, so um, I, they both had a lot of things I could relate to. First off, Jesse, your background's pretty similar to mine as far as, you know, I grew up hunting to eat. Um, you know, we didn't have much money, and we needed to put food on the table, and that was my job. And I, you know, I started... I killed hundreds of rabbits and squirrels every single <laughs> fall. You know, that was my, that was my start. And then, yeah, I, I killed deer uh, for the meat. You know, you, you get, you need a deer, you need food, you kill it, you know? So um, it was very methodical. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's fun, but it was, um, you know, that's where I developed, um, you know, some sense of woodsmanship and, and, you know, how to, 
how to move, when to move, when not to move, you know, how to make the shot, that kind of thing. It was in my teens. Um, I can definitely relate to that. And then what Andy said, you know, um, definitely an aha moment, hunting mature bucks for what they are, not just deer. You know, that was that was kind of the first big, when I was deer hunting, you know, I was deer hunting, deer hunting, deer hunting, and then... Um, yeah, it was, you know, it wasn't that long ago, 15 years ago, probably I was realized, you know, what I was doing is silly, um, was sitting in a tree stand, you know, dreaming about a big buck and looking at, you know, a bunch of does that walk by. So, um, um, anyway, yeah. So, oh, sorry. My kid just, uh, interrupted me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've been waving it. I've been waving yeah. it. Mine, yeah. going, go back, go back. I'm on the phone. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what I did. So, uh, it, you know, so I can relate to that. Uh, second, um, you know, first time sits. That's kind of, um, you know, that was another step in the right direction and a huge improvement in my efficiency when I realized, hey, you know, I'm sitting some spots four, five, six times and I'm killing a big buck on the first sit in in a location. You know, those spots that are great spots. Oh, I'm going to try it again. No, you're not going to kill that. A resident big buck, they are on to you. So um, that's true. And and then making the shot, you know, I call it target panic or whatever. I did definitely struggle with making the shot early on in my bull hunting career. You know, I had a pretty lousy track record. Um, But I wasn't satisfied with it. Um, I changed my practice routine to better reflect basically a real hunting situation. So I wasn't just sitting there, you know, shoot or standing there shooting arrows in my t-shirts and flip-flops, you know, and that was it. Um, trying to mimic hunting situations. Uh, I did a lot more visualization and that was huge for me. You know, when I'm sitting in a tree, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the woods. I'm thinking about how a buck could come by both easy yeah. shots and hard shots. What do I have to do to get the shot made? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I've, I've just seen a huge improvement in how, uh, you know, my, basically my percentage of encounters that result in kills and also, you know, missing or wounding animals that I, I have, a, I have a, you know, I've been able to maintain the last, 12 years or so of a really good track record of getting the job done. And I put it all towards, you know, preparate, you know, preparing for the shot, practicing, uh, you know, in well, visualizing how an animal could, could come in and, you know, okay, what if he comes in back there and I got to twist around and what, what if I have a split second shot, what do I do? And, you know, excellent. preparing That's for an that. Excellent tip. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, it, and it has made the difference on several bucks that I know if I had thought about that a situation very similar to that beforehand, I wouldn't have killed that buck. But it was, you know, maybe a split-second shot opportunity where he just paused, but I was kind of expecting it, or they come in a direction that I wasn't expecting, but I thought, hey, what if a buck comes in back there? What do I have to do to get that shot? How do I have to twist around, you know? Um, and it's, it's made it happen, so... That's, 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 I guess, pretty much it. Um, there's been, you know, there's probably many more, but that's, that's good stuff. So 
I want to ask you guys two more questions. I'd like to keep you here for, for much longer, but I wasted a half hour of your time before we even got this podcast going because of technology. So I need to need to kind of move things along, and maybe we're just going to have to do it five more of these over the course of the next couple of months because this I is could, so good. I don't know about you guys, but I could I could talk to these guys all night. It is so refreshing oh, yeah. to talk to yep, guys that yeah. are, are literally, <laughs> I, I want to finish their sentences and I know they can finish mine. It, it's really, uh, uh, it's an honor. It's, a, it, it's exciting to talk to guys who literally get it. Yeah, They literally get it. Yep. So I, I'm fine to stay all night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe we'll have yeah, our well, first four-hour podcast. <laughs> I'd be good for a little while, but uh, I don't know how my wife would feel if I was here at 2 a.m. Uh, yakking on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> I think so, we've made it clear then. Joe's a quitter. <laughs> yep, yep, there, yep, yep, I'm, I'm, yep. So, so let's let's shift the topic a little bit, and it's something that you guys have alluded to all throughout our conversation. It's always kind of been something you mentioned here or there, something that you're thinking about, um, but I think this is a topic that many deer hunters can point to as another one of their aha moments, that being when they started really thinking about wind in one way or another, that also took them to a different level from a deer hunting standpoint. I remember kind of like you guys all talked about, I grew up just hunting like my dad did. I just walked into the woods, sat next to a tree, never even thought about the implications of what the wind was doing that day. And just changing that one thing just was a light switch moment without a doubt. So let's start with you, Andy, I guess. Can you talk about how wind factors into what you do, whether that be how you try to avoid getting winded or how wind maybe impacts where you think deer will be bedded or where they'll move or anything like that? Can you talk to me about wind and your deer hunting strategy? Yeah, um, it kind of depends on the time of the year, um, I suppose. Um, But, I mean, that's probably the first thing I look at on any given day is, you know, obviously the wind direction, you know, I, I'm not one that tries to beat uh, a deer's nose. Um, you know, I, I wash my clothes, uh, you know, but that's about it as far as that goes. But, you know, uh, early season and, you know, through October when I'm kind of focused more on, you know, bedding areas, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about wind and how they relate to w- which bedding areas would be used in, in a typical area that I'm, that I'm focusing on at that time. So for instance, if there's a, you know, if there's a buck, you know, in this certain area that I, you know, has my interests and I know that he beds, you know, on this oxbow, you know, with a south wind, you know, then I, that's what I'm going to, I'm going to hunt that deer in October, you know, on that wind, um, you know, and try to kill him coming out of that bed that that'd be one example of how I would use, you know, wind, you know, on, on like a bed based type hunt, um, you know, maybe switching more towards, you know, the rut, um, or, or, you know, maybe late October, you know, when, you know, scrapes and that types of stuff, uh, you know, that type of sign kind of starts picking up. Um, I, I haven't really killed a whole lot of deer, like sitting over, scrapes it's not really a tactic of mine but there you know there are certain ones that i do find and on rare occasion that i you know uh, i've heard people call them primary scrapes but you know that might be something i might focus on in that late october time frame you know maybe after a fresh rain you know it rains at night and then you know it kind of cuts off in the middle of the night that might be a spot that i might try you know that next day um you know if it's a good area or you know a buck that 
maybe I want to go after in that area. And I would sit down wind of that straight, you know, so I'm using the wind trying to sit down wind of it, not necessarily shoot him on the straight, but maybe checking it downwind, you know, and then during the rut, you know, I'm, I'm using the wind to more of how a buck would use the terrain and the wind to his advantage. So, you know, I might, uh, a lot, I, it's very common for me to sit on downwind sides of doe bedding areas. I like those, I like those spots. I like them better than your typical funnel, um, for, for big mature deer. Um, it's, it's a spot where it's a spot where deer are going to be coming constantly, you know, when they're searching for does and estrus. So, you know, I, I put myself in a, a target rich environment in the rut. I'm usually leaving Michigan. So there's going to be more than one buck in the area probably that I would shoot. So I'm going to sit that downwind side of that doe bedding area. And, you know, if I'm in the right spot, you know, I'm going to have some good action typically. Um, I don't know, but those are just a few examples of how I use the wind, you know, in hill country, you know, there's, I don't have a ton of experience there, but I'm always monitoring the wind and, you know, depending on the time of the year, more times than not, they're, they're using the wind to their advantage. So you really got to be careful. Um, you know, sometimes when you put, you've heard this said a million times, but sometimes when you put the wind perfect for you, it's dead wrong for the deer, you know, they might not be there in a certain bedding area if it's dead wrong obviously or you know they might not use a a certain terrain feature or funnel you know the way you're wanting them to because the the wind simply isn't in their advantage so there's a lot of times you got to cut corners and you got to you got to take some risks and uh, you know you hear about just off wind hunting a just off wind you know i do that a lot you know you gotta you gotta let the deer think that they have the advantage and that they're safe you know, especially a mature deer, they're just not going to move a ton and, and show that type of vulnerability where they don't have some sort of wind advantage where they can detect their surroundings or, um, you know, or at least when they're, they're going after, uh, you know, does they're, they're, they got a mission, you know, they're on a mission to, to find out what's in that area and they're going to use the window advantage. So you gotta, you gotta cut those corners and be close to that. Do you think Andy, yep. do you think Andy that a buck like can you say that a buck will always if he's heading somewhere he's always going to have the wind in his face or crossing his face or something like that or cuz I know some guys who will say I'm never going to hunt somewhere unless a buck could have the wind, you know, in his advantage coming towards me. Do you think that's true yeah. or can there be exceptions to that? Well, no, I don't I don't think that's true. You know, I, I've seen deer, you know, hunting all or moving all sorts of wind, but you know, typically if they're, you know, if they're in a, an area where they feel safe, you know, typically close to their bedding area, they'll move, you know, with their wind at their back, um, wind at their side, they'll kind of head in the direction that they kind of want to go. But I do That's feel, right. um, and it probably depends on the hunting pressure and, and maybe terrain to some extent. But I do feel like if the wind is there in, the, in their advantage, if they can smell up ahead, they will move further and they will move earlier. Um, so, for instance, uh, I was hunting this buck um, on a property kind of near where I live, and uh, you know, this buck stepped out of this bed, and he stood there, and he just waited, and he let <laughs> – there was a kind of one of those calm, like, light and variable wind days. And he sat there for 20 minutes and never moved – and that wind switched just about every direction. 
and he got a very, you know, a very good idea of kind of what was in the area. And, uh, you know, when he thought the coast was clear, he started moving, you know I mean? He kind of, he felt confident that he diagnosed the area and he started moving and he moved quite a ways, you know, where if the wind was dead wrong, I don't, you know, I don't think he would have ventured off from his security cover as far. So, you know, they don't always move with their wind in their face. They obviously can't, but I do think when they have that advantage, um, especially going on like a, a bed to feed type travel route, I think they will move further. Um, you know, if they have the wind to advantage, if they can, if they can, uh, smell up ahead and kind of scent check those areas, they'll, you know, they trust their nose, you know? So that makes that's a lot pretty of much, you know, pretty much how I go about it. Well, yeah, that's, that's a great point that I would, I would just reiterate. You say, you know, the big thing is think about what the wind is to the deer advantage and then figure out a way to make it work for you, the hunter. You yeah, know? that's right. If yeah. you can't, then, yep. then you don't hunt that spot. You know, if you can't figure out a way to get in there, then, well, that's the wrong spot. You got to figure out another spot, you know, to, to, yeah. to make it work. But think of it in terms of the deer first, not you, the hunter. Otherwise, you always be, you know, too far away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Joe, would you add anything more from how you think about wind or any other facets of, of that? Um, that That's the big thing. Um, the, another kind of important point I would make is it's very regional. Uh, it depends. You adapt to their environment. So not, And that's not just human hunting pressure, but I've become very aware of this hunting role in northern Wisconsin. Um, the primary hunters up there are wolves and bears. Um, so I see far more wind-to-back movement. They're concerned about those predators trailing them down from their scent. So, uh, and they're, they, you know, the human hunting pressure is a little lower. So um, look at what the deer are doing, where you are, that's my advice. And there's going to be patterns and base your hunting based on that. Now here, you know, in Iowa, yeah, deer are definitely using wind to their advantage. How I would describe it is kind of, um, you know, they'll, they'll move in every which way uh, of wind, depending on conditions, but around destinations. So that's not just that's food, but also bedding. They are going to try to use the wind to their advantage. So entering a food source, they'll a lot of times enter in a low area. Um, I see a, a, a big buck will, you know, where thermals might be pooling. Um, and bedding, they, the vast majority of their time, they are J-hooking into bedding from the downwind side. Um, so they, you know, they may be at, they may be traveling in a crosswind, but they'll hook downwind and they'll come up and then they'll bed. Um, that's what I see in hill country. So, um, but it's regional. You know, look what the deer are doing. I'm certain there'd be patterns. No matter, you know, wherever the listeners are, there's patterns what they're doing, and based your hunting based on you know how they're moving according to the wind. But they are using it. I guarantee the deer are using it. So. Yeah. All right, Jesse, you want to wrap this one up on the wind? What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the wind is is kind of like the uh, glass is half empty, half full. It depends on how you look at it. Um, <laughs> I'm a big I'm a big fan of the wind. Some people are so you know oh, the wind kills you. Yeah, it does. The wind makes you or breaks you. So you've got to be smart about it. Um, I love the wind, and in today's day and age, if if uh, probably everybody has a, a weather channel on their phone, if if you're not checking that weather channel before you 
you know, I'm checking it, you know, six hours before looking at it and go, okay, the wind's going to change at five o'clock. I got to account for that because I don't want to be sitting in my stand and have it hit my back. Um, so really study the winds and at least where I'm at, um, it's pretty much always a Southwest wind. Um, those deer cannot possibly always move towards Southwest. They move with it. They're always using it, but you can cheat it and you got to cheat them as close as you can with the bow and arrow with a gun. It doesn't, I mean, sounds bad with a gun. It's a completely different world. Just get way, way, way away. And, um, you know, you're going to kill them with a bow. You got to cheat that wind and figure out what that wind is going to be. And, and really play it. Um, but I, I think a lot of it comes down to pressure, too. I think if, if these deer are heavily pressured, they are going to come to every food source with the wind in their favor. They are going to circle their bed every time. Um, if it's early in the season and they haven't been pressured, they're a little more laid back. They're not spooky. You can get away with more. And that's why you got to have that knowledge. Okay, this is um, a good night to hunt this stand. Or I've killed so many of my best new york bucks i really look for that oddball north wind or an east wind because i can access so many spots that are honey holes that i can never hunt with a southwest wind and a lot of times those deer will bed with a southwest wind the thermals will change and the rest of the day we're getting an east wind but those bucks still want to go to where they were last night and that's when as long as they haven't been pressured they're going to travel a little bit with the wind at their back and I'm going to kill them. And, man, I have killed so many good ones. On a, a north wind, I, I'm literally standing in my shop just jumping up and down. I can't wait to get out of work and go because and, I know I'm going to kill them. I mean, I know I'm really I'm going to have an encounter. And those odd winds and so many other guys, they just go sit the same stand they always sit. And then they have a horrible, you know, they have a horrible night. Well, dude, you're hunting a, a stand that's set up for a southwest wind, and you, it's an east wind. <laughs> what did you expect? So if I'm hunting a pocket, I've got one spot that's literally like four acres. I think I have 12 stands in there. Um, it just depends on the wind and, and, and what you can slip into it. The wind can be a blessing. It is a blessing. You've just got to use it smart. It's kind of like, you know, wrestling against a, a really strong kid. Use his strength against him. Let him exhaust himself. And it's the same with hunting the wind, man. Just use it as a weapon. Use the deer's nose. They think they're, if they can smell nothing, the coast is clear. They're, they're going to just walk through. And if you can escape that scent, they're screwed. You're going to smoke them. So I love the wind. It's a, it's a great tool. And really hunt off winds. I love odd winds. That's a, so that would be my take on, on yeah, winds. It's a great yeah. perspective. Yeah, the vast, vast majority of my bucks I've killed, you know, that are, they were probably within 10 feet of smelling me. You know, they were yeah, just that's right. there when I got that shot. And then yep. an, another point on that, a lot of them, I've killed 50 to 100 yards downwind to somebody else's spot, you know? Yes, um, yes, they're checking them. Oh, yeah. So good. Yeah, that's so, such good points right there. So how about we wrap it up with this? Well, number one, I'm going to try to convince all of you to come on and do this again someday. So uh, whatever I need to do to weasel you guys into doing that, let me know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but number two, I'd like to hear from each one of you a story of a successful hunt and kill that you think is a perfect illustration of what makes you uniquely a, a good or successful hunter. So if you can think back to a hunt where you killed a buck that illustrates what makes you a good hunter, that's what I'd like to hear right now from each of you. And, um, 
How about Jesse? Let's let's throw it right back to you. Can you think of a story oh, you can share? Oh man, you hit you hit me first. I was sitting here thinking this was like ordering food. I was thinking somebody else has to go first so I can think. <laughs> um, man, I have been so fortunate to kill so many good. I have some great stories on killing does um, uh, or, or killing rabbits and woodchucks. Um, I guess a story that, that would say I was a good hunter. Um, I would say jeepers persistence i'd say i killed one um oh a few years ago in kansas um and where i was hunting there is no trees there's really no tree stand hunting i really enjoy it it's spot and stock it is um it's like nothing i grew up doing so it's very challenging um and i i glassed up a um i glassed up a couple of deer i got screwed by a couple other hunters on on public land you know i was kind of getting frustrated um, and I found a bomber of a buck and, or to me, it was a bomber of a buck. Um, and I saw this deer running across this prairie. I ran out after him. He literally was chasing a doe and chasing off another buck, almost ran me over. I was so frustrated. I had, I mean, he just, I, I couldn't have shot him with a gun. I mean, he was literally within 20 yards of me just flying with like grass that was up to my ankles between us. There was, it was, it was awesome. So that buck was so impressive to be next to. I was just like, I don't care. I don't care what it takes. I am killing this deer. And um, I just, I went out for the next two days and looked for this deer and glassed, could not find him. I'm sure he was breeding a doe somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And I ended up glassing him up the next day. It took me five or six days um, in in a, it was a new piece of ground and, you know, an unfamiliar state. And, um, I, I ended up putting a stock on him. another, I think he had four or five bucks with him at 12 does. So it was just a ton of eyes. There is no, there's yucca plants. I, I mean, it's so awesome. It's, it's, it was great. Uh, it's probably my favorite hunt of my life. And, uh, but I mean, I, I kept getting busted, but I, I was smart enough to not get busted by him. I got busted by the satellite bucks that, 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 you know, the took off run and then kind of the herd would get up and they'd move, you know, 300 yards. I'd have to restock a couple spots. He was unstockable. And then it was, it was kind of like what uh, Joe and I were saying earlier. Uh, the sun was setting. I had already been hunting there for seven or eight days. And it was like, I am, I'm going for broke. I took off my boots and, um, I, I, I ran probably a uh, quarter, half mile, big circle in this prairie. And, uh, there was a little bit of terrain there, some rocky bluffs. And I took off my boots for the last, 200 yards and um man i had i had these little thistles that they have out there just embedded in my feet i was i was bleeding i couldn't get them out of my feet um and i just kept going they were stuck in my thighs i mean they're in my knees and stuff and um i came around this rocky bluff and i could just see them and i ranged a rock that was close to him it was 38 yards and um he was bedded and he was bedded away from me and I knew it was going to be, I'm getting excited thinking about it. This is awesome. <laughs> I knew it was going to be, once I crested that, I had to draw, step out, and make a quick shot because they were all right there. And I, you know, I, I remember my heart was racing and it was like, this is make it or break it. This is like your whole trip. And um, it's just all those years of, of, of shooting red squirrels and, and, you know, catching snakes and shooting frogs and sneaking up on woodchucks. That's when, I, before I knew it, I stepped out, drew my bow and drilled them and uh all that those instincts of of listening after the shot and watching where he went and being patient uh it all paid off and and everything it was like textbook if you could have had that on video it would have been phenomenal and and that was right then i thought to myself like 
I didn't even mean to do all this. Like I didn't consciously do any of that. That was just like what Joe had said. It was just instinct of being a killer took over and, and I was pretty proud of myself. That was a big, that was a big public land, um, white tail. And, and I was pretty, pretty tickled with that. So I am so long winded. Sorry. That took forever. No, that's, that's <laughs> an awesome, that's an awesome story. Uh, yeah. Andy, you want to take the next one? Oh yeah, sure. Um, Man, I I, I kind of want to tell the story of my buck from last year, but <laughs> the story was just posted on the website today, so I'll, I'll skip that one. But um, the, the the next one that comes to mind is probably, ironically, my biggest buck, and it doesn't really have anything to do with the size, but hey, um, it was on my birthday, November fifth, and um, I went to a spot. It, it's it's a a, a small spot um, that. It typically is good during that time frame um and it's good because it's a uh, like a river bottom area lots of does and you know during that time of year um you know early november it typically draws in some bucks and you know under normal circumstances there's a couple of good ones in the area but anyway it was highly anticipated hunt, um one of my favorite spots and i drove there which is almost from my house probably oh, probably about 25 miles and then uh climbed up in the tree and the wind is just dead wrong completely different than what they said it was going to be and i was like holy cow you know i've been kind of waiting um you know hunt that spot and it was it's a it's kind of like a pinch it's a bedding area it's a doe bedding area that pinches down so it's a kind of a funnel in a bedding area just a phenomenal spot and, you know, I, I may have been able to kind of sit it out and had some luck, but I was like, you know, I just can't, I can't, I've been waiting all season to hunt this spot. I can't burn it out on a, a wind that's not perfect. So I climbed down and I actually drove 33 miles back uh, to a different property. And the reason I chose that property is because there was a stand that, um, well, a spot and it was, there wasn't a stand hung, but a spot that I had prepped that again um a year prior the year prior i had a very big buck had an encounter with one i think it was on november 4th so the year prior and this was november 5th so i drove to that spot um, had my lone wolf on my back and started heading towards that spot on the way to that spot um you know i you know obviously kind of peeking around and you know just trying to kind of scout my way in sneak in this is midday and uh, I noticed some very large sets of tracks, big, you know, some of the biggest I've ever seen. And I kind of, you know, looked a little closer and lift the binoculars up and I saw some rubs that were the size of my thigh. I mean, the biggest rubs I've seen in Michigan. And I'm looking, you know, from a distance of probably 20 yards or so, and I've got the glass on the rub. And I'm like, holy smokes, you know, and I'm looking and there's shavings on the leaves. Like they're on top. This just happened probably today. And then I look on the, the, it's kind of a a corner of a standing cornfield that was, you know, it's probably a good 70 acres. And in the middle of that standing cornfield is a big oak tree. So a little kind of like a little oak island where a little creates a little mound, I guess, where the corn isn't planted. And then it comes to a corner where there's a, a hardwood and then a set-aside field, like a, like a, a, CRP, a CRP overgrown field. And on that edge of the hardwoods, there's a line of scrapes, 
and each one had a little bit of urine in it. It was wet, you know? So I'm like, holy, you know, this, this deer is here. I don't know where he's at, but he's here. So I didn't even make it to the stand that I was going to. I set up and I set up downwind of that area, had no idea where he was, you know? Um, but I figured, you know, he's probably in here somewhere, um, you know, probably with the doe, you know, it's that time of year. So, um, long story short, I am setting up, I think I was set up at like, um, maybe two fifty, and by three thirty, um, I had killed the biggest buck I've ever shot with a bow in, in Michigan and it ended up being like 172 inch 10 point. Um, so it was, you know, it was just one of those, one of those scenarios where I, you know, I had to make that call to leave an area that was, I knew it was really good because the wind wasn't right. And then I drove, you know, 33 miles to this other spot, had another spot in mind where the wind was perfect. But I came across that hot sign. And when I say hot, it was hot. Like it was, it was, you know, probably that was just a couple hours maybe before I was there um, and was able to set on it, set up on it because I always kind of have a, I'm, I'm very mobile. So I'm, I always have a few little uh, pre-steps and my mobile stand, you know, ready to go, you know, in case something like that happens. And then it happened on that day and I set up on it and it paid off on my biggest buck ever. Man, that's awesome. That's a that's a really great illustration of a lot of those things you you've talked about. Joe, yeah. do you wanna do you wanna try to wrap it up with one more story here yeah. for us? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'll I, I'll uh, I, I've got a lot of stories. I, I know we could go round and round for another <laughs> six hours. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'll tell a story of a buck I shot a couple of years ago on public land. Um, I've shot bigger bucks, um, but this buck, I don't know, just, I, I plain outsmarted him, just, just, you know, just outwitted him. And that, that feels pretty good when you do that. Um, <laughs> and anyway, th- this buck was feeding on alfalfa field all summer long. Um, I had a camera soaking on one side of the field, uh, months of, or months of August and September. Um, I was kind of, just doing some low impact scouting before the season, checked the camera and it was right on the field edge. And there was this really big nine pointer coming in huge body. He had average antler. I mean, real nice. He's 140 class, but, um, huge hulking body was coming in on this side of this field and it was in the dark. Um, almost all the pictures were in the dark, even in September, but it was just after dark. And he was also favoring, a north and northeast winds to come into the field on that side. Well, it's on public land, um, and the edge of the field, or the edge of the public land wasn't that far back from the edge of the field. It was a couple hundred yards of timber that I had for public, but I suspect I I'd scouted all, all that area in the past, and I knew if he was betting, he was petty, probably betting across the fence on private and then coming onto the public and then up to the field in the dark. So... I had, you know, the preferred wind condition, and I had, you know, my guesstimated travel route from, um, based on, you know, uh, cyber scouting, looking at that private property next to the public. I mean, I figured he was betting within 100, 150 yards of the fence, and I thought I could set up basically right next to the fence and get a chance at him in daylight. And so, and that was 
month of September, you know, season opens October 1st. I know patterns change fast. Um, I had to get on him. So October 1st, by luck, I had the right wind. It was like a northeast wind. I slipped in there. Um, I'm 100% mobile. Um, I haven't pre-hung a tree stand in a long time. Set up in my tree saddle. Um, and uh, as luck would have it, there was a guy cutting firewood like back on the private land in the general area where I thought that buck was bedding. He never showed. Um, and this spot, kind of hard to describe, but it, you know, it's kind of a bottleneck. There's several fence crossings uh, on the side of a ridge where they're coming from the private down the ridge, up the ridge, up ultimately to the the field. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had to cover everything. I was set up right in the middle of stuff, you know, kind of going for broke stuff could stuff that was coming past me could smell me behind me, but I, you know, that's where I had to be to get the shot. Well, I got out that October 1st hunt. He didn't show. I did see it, a little buck, I think, and a, and a doe. But um, got out of there, and just part of me, my gut said, and this is where, you know, it's important to listen to your gut. My gut said, it's worth hunting that spot again. So a week later, October 7th, I had the exact same wind. Um, and I went in there, but I did not pick the same tree. I figured that buck was kind of a homebody in there all the time. He would smell my ground set, and if he, he was going to probably adjust his travel route to be coming in, coming past downwind, further downwind. So I moved, I moved about 30 yards is all. That's all I could move, and out now it's like 20 yards from the fence line. Um, and uh, sure enough, he came in. It was perfect. He came in, hopped the fence. He was probably five feet, ten, five to ten feet from smelling me, and he was a full 50 yards downwind of my original setup he would have smelled me and i would have never gotten a shot if i hadn't adjusted that set on that second on that second sit and i and i don't know i i'm big about how the kill goes down i guess for me like i really take a high uh you know i take a lot of pride in like a quick clean kill and i shot that deer through the top of the heart he had no clue what hit him he like hopped about 15 yards stood and then he just went straight down like just boom dead you know <laughs> and i still remember that and that's i don't know between just plain outwitting him he thought he had you know he knew there was a hunter in the area but he figured well i can sneak through and if there's a guy up there trying to kill me i'll smell him you know i know deer can't think but you know he was avoiding <laughs> my first set i'm certain of it and he thought you know and i guessed right I made the shot, and you know he was dead. He had no clue what hit him, and it just—all you know—I love that feeling. No, <laughs> man, that uh, yeah. that is a great a great story. And uh, I've as we as we've been doing this, I have just been getting more and more and more amped to get back in the woods and start scouting or keep scouting, start hunting again. This is just this is this is what it's all about. You guys are an inspiration. As cheesy as that sounds, you guys are inspiring me right now. Um, this is just exciting stuff. There's been a lot here I think people can learn from. You guys have set an awesome example, and you've shared so much. And uh, I just appreciate it. So we're going to have to do something like this more in the future. And uh, until then, thank you guys so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, you guys. It was a pleasure uh talking with all of you it's really great to uh uh converse back and forth with with guys of your caliber thanks for having me mark 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah th- thanks, guys. I I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, do it again. Give me a call. So. Yeah, it's a uh, same here. Be at your house. Then, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's uh it was it's been a good time. Um, you know, I look up to both of these guys. They're both you know very motivating and uh, obviously great hunters. And you know, thanks for having me too, Mark. Hey, my pleasure. Someday yeah. I hope I, I can. I, yeah. I was gonna say someday I hope I can stand in your company as an equal. I'm working on it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I would point out really quick. You know how people conduct themselves is important. A lot of people out there kill big bucks. Like you know, then there's yeah. lots of ways to kill big bucks. And you know, um, you know, pardon my French, but like if you turn it into a dick measuring contest, I don't have any time for that. You know, so <laughs> right. like. I like I like how people you know I like both the way both of you you know you're classy about it you know there's always something more to learn um, you, you never you know never arrogant about it um, and that that kind of thing speaks for itself in my opinion so yeah well said I, I agree with that as well and and the interesting thing if you I don't know if you guys were but uh, mentally as you guys are talking I'm thinking about what you're saying and uh, I think. If you notice, all of the guys, uh, the other guys, anytime somebody was speaking, <laughs> you could uh, the wheels were turning. These guys are definitely students. Uh, at no, at no matter what level they're at, um, they're computing what I'm saying. They're computing what each other's saying, and uh, and agreeing or or adding to it. And to get to the next level, that's the mindset you have to have. And that's why these guys are successful. They they get it. And when they when somebody's speaking they're listening and I've learned a lot from brilliant guys. I've learned a lot from really stupid guys that are <laughs> stupid hunters that killed the giant. And I think to myself, how did he kill it? Well, he killed it because he did something stupid that I would never think of doing. And you learn yeah. from that. And these, that, these guys are students of the game and they're learning from everybody around them. That's a great point. I, I would just mention, I like reading like North American whitetail, like their big buck profiles or whatever they call. Um, because a lot of them are like, complete blind luck like this guy killed a 240 inch non-typical and but it's like it's it's luck but it's not luck you know like yeah he just happened to choose that spot he walked into the woods randomly as a meat hunter and he had this giant but like like i look behind the scenes of the story and all these things are like yeah they're first time sits or you know the guy's not mucking up the spot with checking his trail camera every three days or seven days you know yeah, so true. Yeah, that, so, that's a, that's uh, such you, a good. You can learn point. something from everybody. That's right. Yep. Yep. All right, so, guys. We'll have to definitely do this again. There's so I, I, there's so many other things to keep talking about. Yeah, we, we've <laughs> only we've only scratched the surface. That's for sure. I feel there's a thousand more questions I'd like to ask and topics to cover, but uh, next time. And there you go. Our 200th episode is in the books. And uh, like I said, I think it was at the end of last episode, thank you guys for making this all possible. It's been a heck of a ride and uh, really looking forward to where we can take things next. Uh, That said, I've kept you here a long, long time. I think this is our longest episode ever, so we'll shut this down here real quick. Just want to wrap it up by thanking our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, thank you all for listening. Good luck out there if you are doing some scouting or some shed hunting of your own. And until next time, stay 
Wired to Hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.